0: All profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you.
1: Corporate America is on welfare. And they you gotta get them off welfare. <laughs> Nothing more important than stopping fascism. Because
2: fascism stop
3: Hi, welcome to Cars and Comrades, this is Bryant with a little introduction before we start the episode. Uh, Sorry we're we're a little bit late on our usual schedule, um, but it's for a good reason. We recorded this collaboration episode with the Turn Leftist podcast, Uh, so thanks to them for reaching out to us and um, arranging this, and especially for editing this episode, (laughs) because I didn't want to do that. Um, But uh, yeah, we... Had a good time talking with them. uh, Spent a couple hours talking about Walter Ruther. And uh, thanks to Connor for researching this episode. Um, So, and by the way, a couple times um, Connor mentions that uh, something will be covered in part two. It might be more like part three or four. We're still kind of working on this. Um, So uh, there's a a lot to the story. You know, we want to be thorough. So I don't know. We're still working on this. Uh, we'll we'll let you know uh, what's going on. And this particular episode was recorded about a month ago, uh, so some of our references might be a little bit dated, and our project car updates are going to be out of order from you know the previous episode that just came out. Um, so, thanks to Turn Leftist for uh, providing the the full uh, length episode to post on our feed. Um, normally they cut out the the chat section in the beginning, sort of cold open part. Uh, and save that for their Patreon feed. But this is the, the full two hours and change. Um, but if you want to skip to where we're talking about Walter Ruther, uh, that's around the 40-minute mark on this this episode. Um, or you can go download the, the podcast off of the uh, Turn Leftist uh, main feed. And I would encourage you to subscribe if you haven't already. Um, they put out some good content about all kinds of different, you know, socialist, leftist... Uh, Communist different subjects, a lot of history and other, other good stuff. Um, so if you're coming here from the turn leftist, uh, thanks, welcome. Uh, thanks for checking us out. Um, so this podcast is, uh, you know, mostly about car culture and left-wing politics. Uh, but, you know, there's a little bit of a fuzziness on there. And, uh, you know, so we, we go a little bit further afield from the main topic, go on some tangents sometimes. We've been doing this for a few months, um, and we have about 29 episodes, uh, if you want to go check them out. Talk about all kinds of different things, uh, mopeds, trains, uh, vans, racing vans, drag racing, everything, you know, car-related, labor, uh, of course, unions. Um, I also wanted to uh, thank the Denver Chapter of the Commerce Party USA for throwing a fun Halloween party. Um one of the people there was telling me about a podcast that their comrade does. Um I think it was called Illuminati Chat Attack. At least that's what I wrote down while I was intoxicated. Uh but I can't find that podcast. Um so if you're listening and you know what I'm talking about, please write in and tell me the name of that podcast so I can listen to it. All right. Uh on to the episode. <laughs>
2: How's it going, Brain?
4: All right, man. I'm not gonna lie. I haven't really had my shit together lately, so I just listened to y'all's podcast for the first time to try and get the vibe. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm gonna continue listening because I liked it.
2: Nice. But y'all talked about ketamine
4: for like ten minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we did.
2: (laughs) Oh, the rev left episode. Yeah. Yeah, And I'm gonna be
4: completely honest with you guys. I accidentally ate too many mushrooms this morning, so that's where I'm at.
2: Hmm. Okay, Um, this is gonna be great. I think. (laughs)
4: Uh, I, like, went to a friend of mine, like, hey, we're supposed to fucking guest record with these other dudes, and I ate too many mushrooms, what do I do? And he's like, just do your normal thing. Every time you eat mushrooms, you talk about communism nonstop anyway. Yeah. There you go. Boom. work. It's
2: perfect for this.
4: There's actually a really great video of me from a party where I ate too many mushrooms, and I'm explaining to a 10-year-old that somehow ended up at this party <laughs> about how awesome, like, communism and burnouts are.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, you're on the perfect podcast for that, then. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's what I'm about. I went to a music festival, uh, Muddy Roots, a couple of weeks ago, and and definitely did my
4: thing. I just ate mushrooms for 12 hours and yelled at people about Chevys and communism. Fuck yeah! Yeah, that's that's who I am as a person. That's awesome. Yeah, I stayed real. There was a couple of like, there was like a bunch of biker types there, and I was just like, all right, these are people I should not even mention politics around. Like mm-hmm. a handful <laughs> of mushrooms later, and I'm like, I'm a communist. What the fuck are you gonna do about it? <laughs> Oh, all, right, yeah. all right, we're cool with that, dude. It's fine. I'm like, yeah, bring it. Right, no, no, it's <laughs> They're like, hey, we're we're not good. who you think we are. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're not.
1: <laughs>
4: Why are you trying to fight us? We're agreeing with you. <laughs> so uh, we're going to have, what, eight people on today?
5: Seems like <laughs> we're going to have a full house. Oh, Wait,
4: this is going to be a fucking shit show.
5: Well, this is going to be a mostly <laughs> Cars and Comrades podcast with us kind of guesting. So I think that. <laughs>
4: That'd be nice. Well, yeah, we're uh, we're basically the Bolsheviks where like we, we leverage our position and get power that way.
5: As long as you don't split the party. I didn't say that. We do what we have to achieve communism.
6: <clears throat> Wait, I left some words out of that sentence. Fuck. <laughs> but if any of you guys have any kind of car stories or you're having any car trouble or whatever uh, and you want to talk about it because it could be relevant... Bring it on yeah. up, you know. Car ownership kind of sucks. So, well, you mentioned you know, that I do have a, um, my 2010 Corolla. Um,
5: I haven't used it in a couple of weeks. So I just haven't needed to. And then I went to start it up the other day and it just won't start and it, it tries. And then my father in law hmm. had him like knock on the
6: gas tank with a hammer and that actually got closer <laughs> than anything. Um, what's what you're supposed to, uh, the, the old trick was, uh, when you use the hammer, it's, you're hitting the starter to shake loose the the like brushes inside. Well, um, but it felt really like your starter was going. We, we opened up the butterfly valve and sprayed a bunch of starter fluid right into the
5: manifold um, just a shit ton. And we did yeah. that like four or five times, and it still didn't start. And so then we tried the fuel thing, and I have a full tank, so I know it's not that I'm just out of gas. Um, and then when he banged on it with a hammer, that seemed to get a little closer to starting, but still not quite there. And uh, so, yeah, it was just suggested to me me by a friend to try replacing all the spark plugs and seeing if that does it. But I don't know. Otherwise, we to end up taking it to a mechanic.
6: Yeah, um, there's a good chance what you can there's a good chance. It's like your coil packs or something. It it does seem like there's a good chance you're just not getting spark Mm -hmm. Um, because it seems like, you know, if starting fluid doesn't work, that's usually your dead giveaway that, you know, it's not a fuel issue. Mm -hmm. There's basically only three things that you need for an engine to run air, fuel and spark.
4: If it's getting air and fuel, which it obviously is, then yeah, it sounds like there's an ignition problem.
5: Mm-hmm. I'm gonna try the spark plug thing.
4: I yeah. mean, the spark plugs. Like, I, I doubt the spark plug suddenly went bad. It's probably more that something is not delivering. The spark to them.
6: Well, it's it's an eleven year old car. I mean, well, so what Brandon's saying is usually uh, spark plugs go bad over time. They get dirty and whatnot, mm-hmm. and they'll go they'll go bad one at a time. If, if you're having a problem starting overnight, mm. then it's it's an issue that, like, it's in your um, ignition system somewhere else. It's still oh, okay. a spark issue, but it's it's probably not your spark bugs. Still not a bad idea to change them, you mm. know. But it's funny, I mean, a 20, what was it, a 2010 Corolla? Mm-hmm. I'm sitting here, I'm like, god, that's like a brand new car it shouldn't have any problems <laughs> yet.
4: <laughs> yeah, no world. <laughs> my daily driver, which is my newest is a seventy-five, so <laughs> solid. I'm like, y'all are talking about like fuel injected shit, and I'm like, y'all are wizards. I don't know.
6: <laughs> <laughs> so you said y- coils. I, I should look at. What's that? Yeah, yeah. So the um, they'll, they'll sit right on top of each spark plug. Um, mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's, I'm pretty sure all the coils were four cylinders, so it'll be right on the top, right where the spark plug goes down. At the top, mm-hmm. there's like a little coil pack, and that's mm-hmm. basically the piece that gets the signal from the computer to actually send a, a you know a current through the spark plug. Okay, interesting. So sometimes you know there can be an issue there or if there's if they're not connected right, that kind of stuff. Um, you may end up still having to go to a mechanic anyway, but right. You know, there, there's there's almost like that little checklist of things to to check. And that's where I'd be looking more so than the actual spark plugs themselves. Again, okay. it's still not a bad idea to change them.
2: All right, cool. my neighbor couldn't start his uh, 2013 Dodge Ram last night and then we were fucking with it and it came down to we we're like alright you're not getting fuel like what the fuck is happening um his fuel cap was on so fucking tight that it caused a vacuum so it couldn't suck any fucking fuel out of his fuel tank
6: I have never heard of something like that yeah, like <laughs> dude,
2: we're fucking with it for like 3-4 hours and then he opened up the fuel tank and then we started it up good to go no problems
4: there's something else going on yeah. there. That's, that's, <laughs> that's not how it works. I'm don't, I don't
2: um, not a super car guy. I watched a few YouTube videos. I can work on some shit. I'm mechanically I mean,
6: inclined. I'm just not a car guy. Yeah, that's where it starts. I mean, oh, I, don't I
4: don't know what I'm doing.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Even better. Oh, that almost sounds like uh, maybe a clogged uh, charcoal filter or something in that like EVAP kind of system, which is wizardry that I don't fully understand. <laughs> but there's a bunch yeah, of parts. Yeah, it's like to stop the actual volatile emissions um, because obviously gasoline is volatile and it will escape from your gas tank. So there's certain things that, uh, like a purge solenoid and stuff like that, that like block everything from escaping. So if if there's like a solenoid not opening, um, that could in theory cause such a vacuum or something. Hmm. So, and those are usually like pretty inexpensive parts. Those are like... Sometimes they're oh, it's a fifteen dollar solenoid valve, or a uh, you know it could be a fifty dollar part or something. Mm. But yeah, there's all kinds of little little parts of the kind of gas tank area down there that could be causing an issue like that. Probably not the gas cap, of course. I don't know. that's just undoing like, it. it un- <laughs> undoing it may get it to start. You know what I'm saying? Like, but there's probably something else going on. Is yeah, the
4: correlation is not causation here?
6: Yeah.
2: Like I said, I don't know
6: shit.
4: That sounds like you guys know funny.
2: I know uh, <laughs> communism and true crime. Well, there you go. As I said, I, I think mind. I've been having a problem with my um shit. What is
5: that part called? Boy, what's the thing they're always trying to sell us on eBay because they know where the guns and the ATF? Yeah, to oh, the, the fuel filter? Those. Yeah, but it's not. They call it something else. It's like a. Um, Salmon trap? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I got to this for guns. guns.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you need a drill press for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You just need a nice drill press. I got one of them, and I got to say goodbye to Fido. Yeah. Do you like your dogs? I, Jaren,
6: you have a drill press. Uh, but of course, funny. he walks away when he, after he says he has a drill press. The one tool I need. Uh, it's uh, it is funny when, when it comes to the uh, the targeted ads. There's mm-hmm. there's very few I get, but they're almost always just car parts. Every mm-hmm. website I go to, it's the ads are car parts all the time.
5: No, if Constantly. I get a an ad for a car part, then I know to stay away from it because the algorithm knows that I'm not into cars but it still recommends me solvent traps because that's for anybody who's uninitiated. That's basically like the unlicensed, very illegal, like a felony that will get your dogs killed in a minute. Okay. This is a, Um, this is
6: parody satire for any, for any feds that may be listening. I I definitely don't own one. I will never own one. I'm not
5: that stupid. (laughs) Um, but if you, if you look at like any kind of, you know, cheap ass scopes or anything on eBay or whatever, then you're going to get ads for a solvent trap, which is like, if you just drill a hole through a bunch of these washers in this tube, then you now have a you know very illegal thing that you could put on your gun and uh, make it a lot quieter, let's say. And um, I don't recommend anybody do it because, like I said, your dogs will be killed by the ATF. Like, and in, you in really flat like your so you're, you're
4: saying
0: don't you buy know, anything from Wish.com? for your
4: <laughs>
5: Probably not. No. <laughs> well, I mean, no, you here. can buy grips, like, you know, all the cheap stuff, the plastic stuff.
4: In Pennsylvania, I'm pretty sure that you can legally own suppressors now without, like, getting, like, the tax stamp and all that shit. Maybe that I'd
5: be very surprised to hear. I mean, as far as I know, you still have to get the tax in, but it's still it definitely is easier in Pennsylvania than most other states. Because Pennsylvania is yeah. like
4: pretty I good. I what I, what I, I, like, you can make your own, though. You still have to pay like. Oh, yeah. So like, how is the how is the, the catch can thing? Like, technically, that would just be you buying a thing and then making a suppressor out of it. Very well. Okay, so
5: very true. But what you have to do is the where the the law comes in is that you can have all the parts, you can buy that solvent trap off a wish, no problem, get it shipped to your door. But then as soon as you actually drill the holes through all the baffles and you assemble it as a silencer, then you better have that form filed with the ATF. And you better have that thing that you now made locked up at your local gun store away from you until you get the certification back from the atf and you pay a 200 hundred dollar tax stamp and then you can legally put
2: that on your gun and not get your dogs killed yeah. and not only that you got to get it like engraved with your information and manufacturer information yeah you gotta serialize it
4: yeah okay i didn't know that
2: part
7: it's like you could take a bandsaw to a barrel and make an sbr pretty
2: easily but it's an unregistered sbr at that point yeah, but don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't do that. I'm not recommending, it. I'm just saying it's the same thing. Does anyone
4: else feel like Zack sounds like he's a thousand feet away underwater? Yes. Oh yes. Well,
7: I don't fucking know.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
7: I'm just gonna turn the mic down,
4: and maybe that'll um, change it. This one good? Oh, oh right, yeah, that's nice great. Okay. I am Brandon Danger. Hell yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm Zuko Zach because I started this Discord account to record
7: uh, a parody version of Avatar: The Last Airbender. Solid. And I, played, I played Zuko, so that's it was like six years ago, and I was just like, oh, I got one. I'm not making a new one. I
6: don't know what
0: Zuko is? Zuko uh, is a case study for abolition, is what Zuko is. <laughs> <That's> exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the
7: best uh, redemption arc in all of TV history, and he was on a children's. Television show on Nickelodeon like ten years ago. Yeah, real mixed bag that
4: character. Wait, am I the only one who has no clue what is going on right now? Yeah, I don't know anything about. I anything. also
2: don't know. I don't know okay. shit about Last Airbender.
6: It's a good ass show. It is very, very worth your time if you ever want to watch it. Yeah. See, we don't. We we um. We I think we tried when we first started to like use sort of a hand raising kind of. Set up, and we just never work. We just blurt out whatever, and it mostly works. <laughs> I mean, once the drinks start flowing, it's all—it's whole no board. <laughs>
4: we take like a Stalinist approach, where like we just let everything go wild, and then remove it all in post production. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
6: Mass purge. That <laughs> is actually pretty accurate. That is how I do it.
5: Um, did you guys want to do any more car stuff? Now that we got Brian with us, welcome back, Brian. Yeah, thanks for inviting us on here. Yeah, thanks for coming on.
6: Yeah, I think we'll probably do our quick car updates, keep it short, and then we'll get started on the uh, the main story here. So I don't know. Let's go. Uh, let's go alphabetical. So Brandon. Yeah. I feel <laughs> Uh I started putting my motor back together this week uh, to find that there's damage on the mating surface of my heads. So, oh God! Not, not not damage. It's like weird
7: galling. Literally, if I had a bridge port on hand, I would have it fixed in like two or three hours, but I don't anymore. So You, you mean a, a milling machine or a Wankel rotary engine with a bridge port? I don't get the joke. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, a
4: screw port can wouldn't cut it,
7: but a bridge port would. <laughs> I need a milling machine to
4: resurface my heads, and I don't yeah. have one. So I I get to spend the next week like finding a machine shop that has a turnaround time of like two or three days.
7: That'll be fun. I just get a a fairly flat uh, concrete surface and a bunch of sandpaper, and just wiggle it back and forth. I've seen it done at lemons events. You gotta lube it up though, so spray that down with some WD-40. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Some light oil, something like that.
4: If if no machine shop tells me that they can get me turned around by the end of the week, I'm flat-filing that fucker. Yeah, It's an 8-to-1 compression motor. I'm just trying to get the fucking thing back together.
6: Yeah, he'll be fine.
4: Yeah. Even a buddy of mine who, like, he's a hack, but he knows when to be a hack and when not to be. He was just like, do you have any, like, Scotch-Brite pads for your die grinder? And I'm like, oh my god.
1: (laughs) I'm most upset about that suggestion
4: because it just confirms what I was already considering doing myself. (laughs) You're supposed to talk me out of shit like this, man. I encourage
1: it? <laughs> Dude, at this point, I'm like, fuck it. I just need to get this motor
6: back together so that I can blow it up and put an LS in the fucking car. <laughs> not a bad option.
7: Yeah. Never
2: a bad option. There's so many wires. Yeah.
7: But but not a Chevy LS. You should use the LS out of a um, Lexus LS 400. <laughs> <laughs> That's a right-off call. Um... <laughs> Off the podcast. He just recommended I
4: get a Lexus. So, <laughs> uh, so I have now officially decided that uh, Brian's a trot. He's gone. He's out.
7: So, so yeah. uh, Lexus uh, is a uh, revisionary or whatever. I don't know. The, in the lexicon of the Cars and Comrades podcast,
4: I fucking hate Lexus drivers <laughs> and just the whole brand. Like I've never seen a Lexus that had functioning turn signals. There. I can't. I can't deal with getting like my Lexus level of angry while I'm on this many mushrooms. We're gonna have to.
7: (laughs) I guess I missed the uh, the intoxicants uh, section
6: of the.
4: there was a whole lead-in that you missed where I accidentally mushrooms this morning. Damn.
6: (laughs) Well, this will be interesting. We're well put together. We're a real podcast. (laughs) I've I've been having a lot
4: of comment on how weird it is that I so don't have my shit together considering
7: how. Well, my shit is together. <laughs> yeah, you're you're faking it pretty well. The balance,
4: like all my cars and my house are paid off, and I make really good money. But I'm also just randomly eating too many mushrooms to record a podcast <laughs> on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon.
2: That's the
3: time to do it, though.
4: Well, I was only ate the mushrooms to fight off the hangover I was dealing with. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, shit, I'm a little hangover. I wish I had some mushrooms.
4: Does uh, <laughs> that help? Was- I got a bunch of them over here, buddy. <laughs> Which officially, that's parody. I don't. Yeah, I don't they're uh, sure. Shiitake yeah. mushrooms, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, Brian, you're next. Oh, wait, I'm going to kick Brian off the podcast.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you Lexus, uh, So,
7: I, I haven't done anything on my car. Um, I do need to figure out what parts i need to buy and probably order them pretty soon so they'll get here in time for me to start fixing you know putting in the the transmission on my mr2 so i've got i don't know maybe when we get off the call here i'll have time to uh, jack it up and start like draining fluids and taking shit off of it but um that's about the stage i'm at you know just want to inspect it and see what all i need to replace but i'll probably just replace the whole clutch and everything attached to it and maybe get the flywheel resurfaced if it needs it um i don't know it doesn't hurt so i don't know like maybe 250 300 bucks that really is inexpensive yeah Yeah. i mean i'll i don't know unless something else comes up while i'm in there but hopefully not like the engine was running when the transmission exploded so i'm hoping the engine is in okay okay shape i would think so because i don't have a spare engine so, um, yeah, I've just been doing stuff around the house. Like I got, i fixed the doorbell shit like that. Just minor things. So I don't know. I've been busy with that. So About gotcha. it. Oh, and editing the podcast too. <laughs> That's always fun. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit of a time sink. Got the new one ready to go out day after we're recording this. So yeah.
6: Sweet. Well, I've got some, you know, updates. I, uh, finally got the shop, got the engine in the car, put together all that, and the car wasn't starting, um, which was sort of expected, but it was kind of an unknown. So I called the tuner and they said, uh, it seems relatively normal. It's probably just the new fuel injectors that you know the computer can't tell to open and whatnot. So I took off work, towed the car to the shop, and this very cool shop had like 2JZ motors with the turbos and everything just in the office in the waiting room and I was like wow they had a full billet 2J block and I was like that's an absurd build so it was a cool place to be but they were not able to get it started so we started theorizing it could be this, it could be that it's never fun though after you spend a whole bunch of money on a rebuild and the car won't start. Um, It was cranking though, it seemed like it was in time or relatively close so you know we messed around with it checked a few things thought maybe the injector harnesses were flipped maybe you know the the coil packs were plugged in in the wrong order or something so they checked a bunch of stuff couldn't figure it out so we had it towed back to the other shop and you know my guy's looking it over he pulls off the covers to look at the timing chain And then he he even looked at the flywheel because the tuners thought maybe the flywheel was installed wrong, which would seem impossible normally because there's almost always only one way it can go. But, you know, we're willing to consider anything. So he's looking and he's looking and he tests the resistance across the injectors. They're fine. He tests to see if there's power coming from the actual Nissan harness connectors. There's a signal. So he's like, okay, there's no problem here. But then he decided to check the adapter that connects the injector to the actual harness because apparently they don't just plug right in and the pins were actually too big. So the none of the injectors were actually making contact through the adapters. So the reason the car couldn't start was because of these goddamn adapters on these very fancy fuel injectors. So who would have thought? I mean, just what a bizarre occurrence. So, Probably what's wrong with my Toyota, right? Yeah.
4: yeah. <laughs> Just uh, suddenly uh, having adapters. <laughs> yeah,
7: Yes, so those a thousand CC injectors you put on your Corolla, man. Just, I, did that. I did do that. They <laughs> <laughs> I said I shouldn't, but I I said, I said
5: fuck them all. <laughs> my life, my rule. They also told me I should get that vaccine. What do they know? <laughs> <laughs> Showed them, right?
6: Yeah. <laughs>
4: You got horse drugs (laughs) Do enough ketamine. You won't care about COVID anymore.
6: (laughs) (laughs) That would be nice. Um, So, yeah, we tested all this stuff and it turns out it was just these injectors. So now the car technically starts, but it won't stay running, presumably because we haven't done a uh, idle air volume relearn test yet, uh, which is a procedure to tell the computer that, hey, there's a shitload more air now. Um, because otherwise it like starts up, revs up, and goes oof and it has no idea what's happening because there's just there's like twice as much air as it should normally get. So hopefully that's the last piece of the puzzle, and if so, it's got a bass tune on it, and as long as uh, my guy's gonna talk to the tuner tomorrow, Monday, uh, and make sure that he can run all the normal procedures, and if so, I think the car will be ready for its break-in period, and I am very fucking excited. Wait, yeah, so. Awesome. Yeah. So and do you have to I do got.
7: like uh dyno tuning with that also? You said? Um, I, w- I will,
6: yes. Okay. So, right now it's got a bass tune to like function while I do the break in. It's going to be a very conservative tune. And then after I put about 500 miles on it, change the oil a couple times, we're going to take it down to the dyno and put down some very probably unimpressive numbers, but it'll be fun. <laughs> it'll sound good.
4: <laughs> so, that's all I got. Zach, Where how about you? you? Super cool thing where it sounds like it's trying to die on deceleration.
6: I'm debating. I'm going to have, so I'm going to have five maps set up. And so one of them might have the stupid cracks and pops and whatnot. We'll, we'll see. I'm kind of, I don't know. I'm iffy on those tunes. It's kind of a show tune, which, uh, you know, I'm more into the performance. So. You're not into show tunes? Into what like musicals? Music? No.
7: <laughs> yeah. Not a lover of the arts, are you, Connor?
6: No, no. Plus, I, I see people who do the decel cell pops, and they these are the types of people that never put the clutch in when they slow down, and it's just like you bastard, don't eat. they're just having way too much fun with it. It's like come on, put your foot on the clutch so you don't sound like an asshole. I don't want to do that.
4: Sit down and listen to me while I explain to you the proper way to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> You're not enjoying your hobby correctly. This lecture will be three and a half
7: hours long, and we will not have breaks. <laughs>
6: very anarchist of me <laughs>
7: uh, is that me then
6: that would be you then
7: uh, I'm still fucking waiting man I got an update from my shipping company for my transmission for the ranger uh, said earliest shipment date would have been last thursday then that changed to friday and then back to thursday for some reason
4: and now it's monday so sometime within the next month it might be here that's all i been doing know. just waiting
6: yeah. Well, I mean, it should be
7: soon then. It should be. We'll see. It's just, uh, you know, freight times have been insane recently. So I don't have high hopes for Monday. I'm hoping yeah. before next weekend. That would be awesome because it's already been down for so long. Where Where is the trans again? It's coming from Florida. So I have okay. no idea where it is right now. The shipping, I, it's going through Estes uh, Freight. They don't I heard there was another updates. ship that got stuck in
5: the uh, Suez Canal. That's probably why.
7: <laughs> yeah, I think that definitely uh
2: affected stuff coming out of Florida. They need stop sending such nice thick notes through there.
5: Also, because <laughs> of the Evergrande situation, I know it's a totally different thing entirely, but it's some way related, I'm sure. I mean, you have to blame China.
7: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They have to scapegoat for something.
6: I don't know how, but it's probably China's fault. Yeah, always. Yeah. They'll always find a way. Yeah, it's not China, fault. it's Russia.
5: Yep. Actually, what was the ship that got um, stuck in the Suez? Was it Evergreen? Yeah, yes. Because I just have a feeling like somebody, like some Marjorie Taylor Greene character, will somehow tie Evergrande to Evergreen in some way, just not realizing the (laughs) difference whatsoever.
2: Yeah, that's if she's not recording another dumbass fucking commercial where she shoots a fucking Prius with socialism painted on the side. I mean, okay, look, I'm, I'm going to go yeah, out on the I entered the contest, okay. Of course, entered, why yeah. would you not? I want a 50 cal, okay. yeah. Yes. Oh, I want a 50 cal. <laughs>
4: but like, I've not been on the, this moral plane for like a few weeks. Like, what contest are we talking about?
5: Okay, so Margie Taylor Green did two cool things in the past like two weeks. She has a contest to win a 50 cal rifle. Like, if you guys... If you've ever seen the Hurt Locker and you saw that rifle that Jeremy Renner was using to, like, literally shoot people through cinder blocks, uh, that's that one. You know, one of the cartridges is, like, it's like a marital aid. It's, like, fucking huge. It's, like, you would <laughs> see one on OnlyFans. Like, they're enormous.
4: I'm assuming we're talking about a Barrett.
2: Yes, it's a Barrett. It's a Barrett 50 yeah. Cal. So yes, you can win so one of those. That compared to <laughs> that. Thank Big you, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah i like that you just had those on hand that's always a good thing yeah, you just keeps them Pretty around much. for reasons
5: you know but yeah. um so not eyes. only did she do that she had uh, she had this <laughs> contest where you know her commercial she's shooting a prius with one of those barrett 50 cals and it blows up because she also loaded the thing up with tannerite and spray-painted socialism on the side because <laughs> nothing you know says socialism like a capitalist made car in a capitalist country that is paying lip service to environmental regulation and staving off the collapse, but not really. But then the other thing that she did was that she held some kind of uh, speech on the floor of the Senate or Congress or whatever she does and was oh, just like showing memes. memes. And this is <laughs> yeah. like, all right, she's kind of winning me over. Like I almost, you know, I, I can understand the leftist alt-right pipeline, I guess. You know, you see somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene looking at us, how does she looks? you know, posting memes on Congress and shooting things with a bare 50 cal. It's like, I'm kind of, I'm going fast. I'm sorry guys. I can't lie. Like, what can I say?
6: I don't know. Is that pipeline real? I hope not. not. I'm I'm shocked all the time by all kinds of things. No, I do think it's actually funny. It's something
5: that I could just go on a rant about. I'm not going to, but like the amount of tiptoeing that everyone
4: knows. What's that? I just broke my fucking toe. What?
2: What happened? We got tiny know. toes in the house.
4: When I got up, I sat back down. My toe feels a little weird, and then it's bending in a different direction than the other toe. Well,
1: oh,
0: bend God. it back.
4: <laughs> Put it back
0: <laughs> in the right direction.
5: No, seriously, I did that with my finger once. I never went to the doctor. You're fine.
4: It doesn't hurt, but I can't feel the toe at all anymore.
0: Yeah, you should bend it back. Uh, the sooner, the better. Yeah, DIY healthcare.
4: No, it's a yeah. correction. But I can bend it in a direction it shouldn't go. No, oh.
0: uh,
7: I mean if you need to get off the call and like go to the hospital or something, I, we won't feel any, or think any less of you. You know, achievement unlocked.
2: Is what he said. It like it was just like he was on way too many mushrooms and he had to leave early. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I'm not on enough mushrooms that this should just not hurt. This okay? You know what? I'm derailing here. This is freaking me out a little bit. I'm gonna stop focusing on my toes.
7: No, you're good. I mean, keep an eye on it. If it turns purple and falls off, you know, that's a that's a sign that you might need to go to the hospital or something. Oh, that's not for your amputation?
4: Right now, because I quit my job.
5: That's going to be another tally on the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> oh,
4: yeah, I'm sorry for derailing that. This is just, like, legitimately freaking me out right now.
5: No, that's it. I was just talking about how hot Marjorie Taylor Greene is. No, no rush. We got all day. Why don't think she's that hot? No, she's no, not sorry. At all, dude. it's, it's <laughs> called jokes
0: i do this from time kind to of time i know i'm the serious guy but we have guests like i mean she's hot for a horse i guess oh, wow
5: <laughs> <laughs> no but i mean i was gonna say like i i do get sick of how ready people are to jump on any other leftist for like if you say sure. anything like even just now when i'm joking saying that there's like a a a Marxist to alt-right pipeline and that I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is hot and I think it's good that she shoots a Prius label socialism and I think it's cool that she puts you know memes in her presentation (laughs) on the floor of the Capitol or whatever it's like there's literally going to be some listener out there who thinks oh you know what Mike is finally unveiling his true colors I knew he was a fash all along it's like the fact that everybody (laughs) left is so ready to jump on everybody and think that we're all crypto fashion disguise it's like it's very weird the right doesn't do that they just like very much assume that everybody's on their side until they give them like a multitude of reasons not to think that, but I don't want to go on a rant. I said I wasn't going to, I'm doing it anyway. Let's talk more about uh, some toes and how we break them.
4: <laughs> it doesn't hurt, but it's not right. Um, no, I like, I, I wondered to, to what extent that's almost like embedded in like the history of the left in the U.S. because we're very used to being infiltrated by the CIA, by the FBI, by cops. Like This is true. I was t- talking to a friend of mine the other day. Like, what the, the Black Panther Party had cops infiltrate them within months of their formation. Like, there were people who, who had been Black Panther Party members for years. Like, I think the dude who got Fred Hampton fucking killed had been a, a cop. Like, he'd been a, an informant for years. So, like, yeah, I'm petty disputes. I, I get why, like, it's really dumb to immediately go to crypto fashion, but like, yeah. If you have done your reading, you kind of always have to be a little bit like, well, but are they? <laughs> yeah.
7: yeah. And, you know, I don't know a whole lot about this, but I have heard that, like, oh, a whole lot of uh, trots turned into neocons back in the day. Like, I don't know what the actual, you know, mechanism of that was. If it was just like, opposition to the Soviet Union and they're like well might as well get aboard this whole Reagan thing but uh (laughs) it kind of makes sense because I feel like a lot of hippies turned into
5: boomer neocons and Trotsky's hippies of Marxism so it kind of makes
0: sense like in a way the hippies were always destined to be fucking fascists Uh, there was never an alternative to that
4: (laughs) one of the earliest presidents of CPUSA uh was he went to jail because of his uh, communist affiliations, like a couple of times. And then there was a schism when he got out. And I keep wanting to say Earl Browder, but I don't think it actually was Earl Browder.
5: No, he was the patriotism guy. I only know about that because of the recent Rev Left Red Menace episodes about him.
4: Oh, I, I didn't even know they, they had done that. So I will have to check that out. But one one of the early leaders of uh, CPUSA, like, did become one of the like key anti-communists later on after he basically like the party abandoned him after he got out of jail he went to jail for the party got out and there had been like some schisms and he was kind of had uh had no place there anymore
5: and actually that may have been earl browder because he was the one who like apparently was saying that um socialists in america should adopt patriotism like very much that same argument that was going on recently online okay i think i know the one you're talking about yeah yeah, that's actually the reason the Red Menace and Red Left did the episode on him, because they were addressing that exact debate that was going on. And they brought up his name several times, not saying that, you know, people who are doing that now are Browderists. I think it's um, who is it? So it's I always get these two people confused. There's Jason Hickel, who is a great journalist who has been on Citations it a bunch of times. And then there's also Jackson Hinkle, who is the leftist who has the American flag behind him all the time and suggests that we as leftists should espouse American patriotism and win that over to our side. And then, you know, Brett and Allison did a good episode as to why that's kind of a ridiculous thing to to say that we should do and, you know, all the the implications that American patriotism is fraught with that prevent that from being a real leftist project that we should endorse. But yeah, I didn't mean to derail things again, but continue, sorry.
6: Oh, right. don't worry, our podcast is entirely made up of uh being derailed and sidetracked and that's our podcast.
4: Yeah, and I'm yeah. currently looking up which of the the guys I'm trying to, to think of. It's it's funny, when you're talking about like leaders of like the nineteen twenties and thirties, C P USA, it's not as easy of a Google as mm-hmm. a lot of other things tend to be.
2: Nah, that'd be too easy. You just have to go to CIA.gov. <laughs>
4: now, now I'm like trying to do legitimate like actual research while one of my toes is pointing in the wrong direction and I'm high as fuck. You should probably just like
5: straighten the toe. I think nothing bad will happen if you just straighten the toe.
4: Like I said, it's pointing in the right direction, but I'm able to move it in a direction that the other two toe won't move. So this the frightening part is that it just doesn't hurt at all. So now I'm wondering if my toes have always
5: been really fucking weird and actually know that's my right. option. <laughs> I'll just I'll just tell you, since this is related, one time I was running and I had my water bottle in one hand and my phone in my other and I'm running and I fall and wanting to save the phone. And I like the water bottle tumbles out of my hand and I stand up. My iPhone is fine. Music's still playing. And I get up and a pinky finger is just like pointing 90 degrees out that way, just at that Ooh. knuckle, just like that way. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I'm like, I got to take my kids to the zoo in like an hour. I'm not going to the hospital and ruining like the whole day. Like, and so I just like pulled on it and straightened it. And then I taped it up to these other two fingers. And I did that for like 48 hours. And then it was fine. Like, no problems. Like, you can't even. Not bad. Good. Yeah. what I, I did so what nah. I'm saying is just, just straighten the toe. If it's not straightened, it sounds like it's straight, but like maybe tape it up. You could probably tape it up. Do a little splint action.
4: Choosing to decide that I've always had weird toes, but it took mushrooms to realize how weird. They were. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's the Futurama episode. It's like
4: no, no. Okay, yeah, I, I was way off. Uh, I'm not Earl Browder. Benjamin Gitlow.
2: Oh, never heard of him.
4: He wrote like several like expose sort of uh, anti communist things uh, after he got ousted from the party. Boo! Yeah,
2: well, my friends don't want to play with me anymore.
4: <laughs> I actually do want to read what you wrote, just out of like morbid curiosity. But go for it. Um, I, I hear that it's. Oh, you mean not not now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, if everybody would just please be quiet while I spend the next <laughs> eight hours dictating a uh, historical work of anti-communism. Um, <laughs> no, no. He like supposedly he wrote two. I think there are two books that he's most well known for that were anti-communist and one was basically just like a parody of the other where he was like actually it was so much more extreme than I originally said or or something to that effect where like he was basically he abandoned communism and was trying to cash in on having abandoned it. Mm. Which Mm. uh, shocker I don't think it worked out well for him in the long run.
5: Do you say he was the first Hassan Piker? (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I would say that if I knew who Hassan Piker was. <laughs> it's
2: all right. Yeah, I mean, part just uh, abandon communism and then just uh, cash in on it. That bitch.
4: I mean, is it fucking bitch? If, if, if capitalism is good at anything, it's co-opting anti-capitalism. So,
5: yup. Did you guys want to start the actual Walter yes, Roy- Risky stuff?
6: Probably. Yeah. That we have a topic today. All right, cool. Let me uh, let me do yeah. like, our our little intro here. And yeah, then, that's uh, great because we we're terri- we're terrible at intros. Like we've been doing uh, this top. podcast for a while, and we are bad at it. No, I mean, <laughs> we're like transitioning
7: so from one thing to another. Yeah,
5: <laughs> we're an, we're an hour in. I figure it's about time to actually start the the episode proper.
4: And I forgot we were recording. Honestly,
5: <laughs> Ward has the joke that we will for our April Fool's episode. We will just do an entire like hour and change episode of just the cold open and never once have the intro happen or the song or anything. <laughs> And never never even explain it, just like it just starts with us randomly talking and then ends, and then that's it.
0: I think yeah. we should drop the song like partially several times.
2: <laughs> oh that's good. I like that now we're gonna have to cut this so people don't expect it.
0: I was actually
5: thinking what we should do is do a turn right episode and like literally have like our guy do the do the theme song again and just have the g p s sound going turn right turn, turn right and then oh, just, funny. just do like an, an entire episode where we talk like stupid fucking libertarians and like rail about a whole bunch of things that affect us personally because we feel oppressed as white guys but we're not actually oppressed but we just gotta like rant on the things that like we hate personally like taxes and the fact that I have to like press 2 for English when I call like a call center or something like that. What's your
2: language setting on the ATM?
5: Dude we can so we'll
2: spend a whole hour and then
5: we'll never address it again just like just do the worst parodies of like the but I mean make it good it'd be good good parodies
4: It's trying to parody the right wing in America because that's what they are.
5: I mean, if you put on Oakley's, you're halfway there, dude.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's what do they call it, Poe's Law? You know, what is it, a a parody is indistinguishable from, you know, the real thing sometimes if it's a dumb enough
2: philosophy. I think that's how that goes. Yeah, I'll record that episode in my car. (laughs) 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 Oakley's on. (laughs) Just really channel the spirit. Oh, uh yeah. I'm gonna say yeah. that's probably not good.
5: It, well, it, why good. Is it it doesn't look like it's in the
7: right spot. I mean yeah, yo, it? what the fuck, dude? You can't <laughs> what?
2: I, I would you tape know, that up. Mine don't do that.
4: I checked. The other foot's not that way.
2: <laughs> Science. All right, everybody check your
7: toes. <laughs> yeah, I just Yeah, my, my toe's not doing that. I'm not gonna I'm not I gonna push
6: know.
4: it any further. Connor, did you did you see my demonstration? I did not. All oh right, it's going pretty
6: far. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Maybe it's normal. I don't know.
4: The other one doesn't do anything close to that. So, dude, uh, so this, I, I think, I do. I have the first injury from podcasting for you guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah right right far, dude. Nobody else gets injured. So like, we don't do that.
2: No, <laughs> yeah, no. I get really drunk on here. I'm surprised it hasn't happened.
4: <laughs> uh, there's only one episode I don't rec- remember recording, so. <laughs>
2: the main reason i listen back to our episodes is because usually about halfway through is when i start forgetting what i said and i'm like all right i should probably listen to that in case uh, anybody has any questions about shit i said don't worry buddy i got you covered because i always make sure the the really like uh fed
5: stuff the stuff that will get us arrested doesn't make it to the uh the final cut <laughs> all right that's good
4: nice are you guys gonna work for me because i say some pretty
5: inflammatory things often i got you covered <laughs> i got the bleep button I, I take care of it all in post don't worry
2: Those
5: communists are amazing. Alright, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Lefts Podcast. I'm Mike, he him. And tonight I'm here with Ward, he him, Jaron, he him. And tonight we have special guests from the Cars and Comrades podcast. We have Connor, he, him, Zach, he him, Brian, he, him, and Brandon, he him. How are all you guys doing? Answer in any order that you feel like.
4: <laughs> Pretty good? Doing great. I'm doing great. I'm really worried about my toe. <laughs> That's motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> what an intro. That's what I was hoping for. Well, my toe is pointing in the wrong fucking direction,
5: so... Or the right direction. You never know. Maybe it was always meant to be that way.
0: It is making an L. Is it pointing to the left? (laughs) No, No, it's good.
5: No, but seriously, it's good to have you guys on. I've listened to your podcast for a while now, ever since I found you guys. I was actually introduced by my friend Phil, um, another car guy and fairly leftist kind of dude. A little more lib. I'm going to fuck with Phil right now. Phil, you're kind of a liberal. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, I, was, so I haven't listening to your podcast a while I like it. Even as somebody who's not into cars, I find the discussions that you guys have about your cars entertaining because they're usually things I can empathize with. When you guys were talking about your recent car projects, I was thinking of uh, whenever Ward and I get into our sporting goods channel and people who are uninitiated jump in there and they just sit back and watch what the fuck we're talking about. And yeah, we could go on for a while. I, I can totally understand where you guys are coming from. So it's good to have you guys on. Thank you for joining us.
6: Yeah, yeah cool. thanks, thanks for having us.
5: We
4: yeah. uh, we greatly appreciate it. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that you are a listener because I personally have never listened to our podcast. So, <laughs>
7: <laughs> yeah, I I mean I when Connor told us uh, about your podcast, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I listened to I, I especially liked the, the episodes you all did about Cuba and the revolution. That was really interesting. Yeah, the Cuba one was good. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with those, and we had you know particularly good guests, uh
5: with Comrade Howell talking about Cuba. Yeah. Um, um so tonight our topic is going to be Walter Ruther. Now this is a figure that I had never heard of until Connor you brought him up. I knew I wanted to have you guys on, reached out to Connor, thought uh, might as well have you guys on and see what kind of topic you might want to cover. And you mentioned Walter Ruther, and so I had to look him up because like I said i would never heard of what this guy had even done. But you said he's a major socialist figure and a labor organizer, and indeed he was. And so he has a very interesting story and one of the things that Connor and I have been chatting about is that this guy absolutely could have a movie or several movies made about it. And now there have been some documentaries, but nothing like, no dramas or anything that I know. And I feel like there could be some kind of like
6: Hollywood, if not blockbuster, at least something close to it. I feel like a lot of people wouldn't, they wouldn't even understand. They'd be like, oh, I'm sure half of that was made up. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> nope. yeah.
5: Nope. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like the Irishman is right up the same alley. Like if you like that movie, you will like hearing about the Walter Ruther story because it's. A lot of similar themes going on, but I mean,
7: I hesitate to say that that would be a good thing for a Hollywood movie, just because they'd probably give it to like Aaron Sorkin, and he'd do the the Abby Hoffman treatment to it and fuck it up. Oh yeah, but and make it some you know lib Oscar bait bullshit. But it it's a very fascinating story, and uh, I think yeah, definitely it would. Like we've dipped our toe into the Walter Ruther story on a couple other episodes before. You know, he's kind of crossed paths with some other characters that we were talking about. Yeah, um, yeah and, he's pretty unavoidable. Actually. Right, yeah.
5: No, I feel um, like if you so, were going to do a real Hollywood movie about him, you'd have to give it to Boots Riley, or else it would get, again, like yeah. you said, turned into a totally lib story. They would make him, like, the anti-communist, but, like, if Boots did it. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, well, you'd have okay, a good movie.
4: I have to interject here. Uh, I found at least one quote with backing. I couldn't find who said it, but uh, that Walter Ruther dealt the single greatest blow against American communism of any person in history.
6: Yep. Who said, who um, said this? I
4: the source of the quote but that being said like he had some ties to socialism and there was some like theoretical affiliations with depending on who you talk to he either either was a a card carrying member of the communist party uh spoiler alert he was not yeah he Um, was not he might have attended some meetings out of curiosity which was a more common thing to encounter at during Mm -hmm. that era of like the 1930s but uh, he purged communists out of the UAW in the 30s. He ousted several uh, vice presidents who were like, when he was first elected president of the UAW, his vice president, which was a democratically elected position all its own, like, uh, so it was elected in addition to his election, mm-hmm. um, was a member of CPUSA. And I didn't find any of the real, like, specifics on what happened that got him to lose an election, but like, when we st- when Connor and I started discussing uh, Walter Ruther, like he he kind of jokingly gave me the uh, position of just being contrary because that's what I'm best at. Mm-hmm. But as I got reading more and more, I was like, okay, like there's a lot of positives to be learned from this figure, but there's also a lot of valid criticisms that need to be addressed more than they are. Yeah. If you're like uh, an AOC, fucking like liberal progressive, uh, yeah. Go ahead.
5: Well, I was going to say now that you say that, it makes me think of him a little differently sort of like an FDR saves capitalism by instituting the most progressive policies that we've ever had in the US up to date. Um, so maybe you're apartment. saying the same thing like
1: yeah.
5: um, there's I mean continual learning because that's very relevant to you know internet drama which I love and uh, you know <laughs> stuff that's going on lately.
4: I was going to say like simply like like from that crowd, he's probably the perfect figure. He's the labor organizing version of, I don't know, I'm too high to fucking figure that out right now. (laughs) He's a character that like, if you're like a lib, then he was perfect. You know, he was,
6: he was essentially the AOC of the labor uh, movement in the United States, you know, from the 1930s through to the 1960s. I
4: would not agree with that because he did actually accomplish things.
6: Um, (laughs) Sorry, Brian, did you have something real quick before we actually get started?
7: Yeah, I mean, I was just going to, you know, kind of what you all said. I I was going to say he's basically the best lib that has ever been. (laughs) Like, I think I was saying that in the Slack channel when we were talking about him. I mean, I I wouldn't put him up there with uh, like maybe MLK, but he's one of the the best figures. He kind of exemplifies what the best that you can do in the liberal world order, like um, working through the system you know mm-hmm.
4: yeah that's well but i think yeah, yeah. and Let, let's bring all think, the libs
7: who think that you can
5: change the system from within and see where we are now yeah. <laughs> for figures like walter ruther <laughs> and mlk and whoever else
4: if i can double back real quick uh, i think it would be incredibly funny if like anybody made a movie about walter ruther as like a biopic because uh, iotzi is about to go on strike for the same shit that he was fighting for 60 and 70 years ago like yeah. Um I actually work in the film industry nowadays, so yeah, like the same stuff that he was against in the thirties and forties, we're still fighting for. Like, but make make no mistake. they will give it to you and they will take it right the fuck back.
7: Yeah, pretty much. much and Brandon, I think it would be really cool to see uh Boots Riley uh movie about uh the revolutionary uh union movement rather than Walter Ruther.
4: That would be the story I want to hear. Yeah. Which uh are you guys familiar with the Revolutionary Union movement in Detroit?
6: That'll be part two. Part two.
4: <laughs> well, well, we'll get into it, but uh, if I could paraphrase really quick uh, within the UAW in the late 60s, early 70s, a faction developed called the Revolutionary Union Movement, which were a Marxist Leninist group within the UAW who were fighting. Like, it was pretty much, a, a ex- they weren't really black nationalists, but it was like exclusively black, and they were trying to fight for the rights of, like, their brothers and sisters on the shop floor, because... And that's why I say that the legacy of Walter Ruther really needs analyzed, because, like, ostensibly he was fighting the good fight and made gains, but on the shop floor, no, they were still... There was still overt racism. You had Klansmen like, running the shop in some instances. Like, there is a... Dude, I found a great video clip of a protest that uh, Drum put on. And a thing that I've come across a whole bunch is uh, they always referred to Walter Ruther as the redhead. Did, did you come across that a bunch, Connor?
6: Yeah. Yep.
4: Yeah. Uh, it's really great coming across a drum, like, video of drum members chanting "Behead the redhead. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah. There, there were factions within the UAW that were no fan of Walter Ruther for It's... I don't know could he have, he could have done more it could have been a lot worse it's hard to say it's a complicated yeah. story yeah so speaking
5: of a complicated story let's uh let's, yes. let's get started so if we could so, just like i'm gonna hand it over to you connor because you know thankfully you have done the hard work of writing up the notes and everything so i'm perfectly happy to hand it off to somebody else to sort of run the show uh at any opportunity so yeah if you could I'll leave it off to you where to start, but I feel like the briefest way to say it is probably that he was a union organizer for the majority of his life as far as like we're concerned. So if you could just take it from there, please.
6: Yeah. So um, Walter Ruther was uh, the president of the UAW. He was elected in the after World War Two. He became the president of the United Auto Workers, which was at the time the largest union uh, in the United States. He also after that was the president of the CIO which is the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, so he was president concurrently of both. He was a socialist, but he was an anti-communist socialist.
4: I mean, yeah. The way that you usually do that is class traitor.
6: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so he got more conservative or more complacent over time. To be you know fair to him, I'm, he lived through several assassination attempts. Uh, and likely was, you know, assassinated for all his effort and all his effort in denouncing communists and trying to be more, quote unquote, legitimate, he still wound up dead in very suspicious circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's kind of the intro. He was an incredibly influential and important figure in the labor movement and in U.S. politics um, post World War II.
4: Yeah, he, he played a role in the civil rights struggle in the 60s.
6: Yes, and he had personal relationships with several U.S. presidents. So
4: Jr.
6: the Walter Ruther philosophy was that labor was designed to change society. It was, it was about more than increasing wages on the shop floor. It was about creating a better society. And he used this uh, to get unions politically involved. And this political involvement was, you know, I call it playing by the rules. This was the effort to play things nicely, you know, negotiate with power. And ultimately, I think the takeaway is while there were some successes with that, it seemed to come with a very heavy price tag. Um, So that's kind of the, the broad strokes. And I've kind of put my notes into two distinct time periods. So there's really before World War II and then there is after World War II. Um, After World War II is when he actually became president of the UAW and later the CIO. But before that, he was instrumental in organizing massively famous strikes. And he and his brother, Victor, and his other brother, Roy, um, are a big part of the reason Detroit became a union town in the first place. So that's kind of where the story is going to go. I do have some notes here for some things to think about as we go through this, because I think this is an interesting story all its own, and we could tell it just straight. And I think it's a great story. I think it's better if we try and think about things as we go through the story and we try and learn what we can. So I kind of have like a few questions that I I wrote down ahead of time as I was going through my research of things that I just kind of themes that I I saw in the story um, that I think are valuable to think about. Although I don't know that I'm going to be able to draw any conclusions to these questions. Of course, you would maybe answer them differently depending on your ideology, but I think they're important to actually think about and engage with the story in a, in a substantive way. Um, So to that end, I I think we should think about, you know, how, how did union power actually rise in the first place? And then why did it fall in the U S uh, what can we learn from the shortcomings of the strategy pursued by Walter Ruther? then how should we think about the dynamic between getting power within the capitalist system and building movements outside of the centers of power? So, you know, is is having influence with presidents or politicians um, actually worth anything in the long run? Um, And I think that's a question that we're still trying to answer today. And we see it debated online all the time. Um, And I don't know that there is a right answer. So the next one would be, how should we think about making compromises and giving concessions to get gains for working people? Uh, Again, that's arguably (laughs) Well, the problem is the reason these are questions is unions are likely our most powerful tool for the working class. The problem is the job of the union is in fact making those concessions. So unions themselves as a strategy kind of undermine what makes them important at the same time. It's a double-edged sword, I think. Uh, and I think that's kind of what we learned from this story is eh, there's, there's pluses and minuses, but we kind of have to, we have to think very critically about how we engage in these struggles. So I also have, uh, how should we think about political education for union membership? Is it really better to have larger unions or more radical unions? Um, is there kind of, how should we actually think about that, that big tent approach versus something a little bit more ideologically pure? Um, What sorts of alternatives might exist to the political engagement we saw from unions in the 20th century? So should we think about a separate workers party um, or a complete refusal to engage in electoral politics? Uh, What could we do in the 21st century, assuming unions actually regained some power? Um, How should we think about the very small, pivotal moment throughout history that shaped the world as we know it? One of the things I come across in this research is... There are a lot of cases where there's these broader trends and you know these huge struggles, but a lot of the wins and losses come down to these like very small pivotal moments that occur completely outside of workers' control. And how should we actually consider how how to approach those sorts of situations uh, going forward? Because there is there's a huge role that chance plays in a lot of these movements, um, and I find that very unfortunate. But Perhaps there's ways to hedge against it, or or maybe not. I don't know. And how should we think about the very real pressures placed on unions by the global capitalist system? Since we know capital can move abroad and workers can't, and there is actual real competition between workers and businesses abroad, unions seem to kind of be in an ever weakening position by their very nature. So going forward, are unions even a viable option given these sorts of pressures? Um, and then how should we think about legality in future labor struggles if the game is actually rigged by the ruling class and lawmakers like we know it is can anything be gained by playing by their rules what alternatives might exist and what are the costs of abandoning past notions of legality Uh, and i think that's actually one of the bigger questions that uh, i think we need to consider going forward is kind of playing by those rules um, or not so anyway i hope that serves as just a little bit of a guide to how I started thinking about this kind of research and see what we can maybe come up with through the story. Uh, hopefully it answers some of those questions. I don't know.
4: I think it'll be an interesting thing. I have a lot of opinions on a lot of what you said. I Me mean, to- too. I'm trying not oh, yeah, to like
6: okay. go into a rant on any of these questions. Really, I'm trying to just put them out there as something that I thought about and something I think we should all think about and even have conversations amongst each other. Like I said, I wrote them down. I'm not necessarily going to answer them for you. I just think they're worth thinking
4: about. I think a really important thing is that we come at Walter Ruther like rejecting the great men of history thing. Yes. Because everything that I came across about Walter Ruther was just like painting him as like the MLK of of the working man sort of thing. Like it was it was all glamour. And yeah, uh, there was a lot of dirt underneath that like a whole lot and i'm not going to condemn him for a lot because i do realize that he was actually trying to make gains for working people and he had shortcomings and a lot of times he was doing what he thought that he had to do to work within the system and i think you know that's where it went wrong man he was at the, the helm of something major and they had actual leverage they could have said fuck the system we are work like General strike. He had a lot of weapons in his arsenal that he did not use. Yeah. there's, there's things We learned from him, but there's a lot of critiques to be made
6: too. And it pains me to see how few of them actually get made. Well, hopefully we'll be able to do it here. Oh, I'll do it. loudly. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> so, um, in this story, I kind of want to introduce a few of the, uh, villains that we're going to see in this story. Uh, a lot of them you'll know. Some of them might be surprising, We also have a few heroes to introduce after that. Uh, So the villains in the story are, of course, capitalism, number one villain, every story, always capitalism. Um, The next would be the auto companies. Our other big villain uh, of this story is going to be Harry Bennett, which is Henry Ford's most beloved henchman. And then we've got Henry Ford himself, the old bastard, J. Edgar Hoover, another familiar enemy of the left, Robert A. Taft and Fred A. Hartley Jr., and if those names sound familiar, you're probably thinking of the Taft-Hartley Act, which uh, brings us to largely to where we are today. Yeah. Um, Hold on one second.
7: Did you have something, Brian? Um, I was just going to plug a couple of podcasts. I, you might have been getting to this, uh, Connor, but uh, The Dollop did a really good episode on um, yes. Yes. Uh, Harry Bennett. I just looked it up. It was uh, 261 Henry Ford's Henchman, live in Detroit with uh, guest Matt Christman. And then also for our, our own podcast um, episodes uh, seven, eight, and nine about how Detroit auto workers built a revolutionary movement about the different revolutionary union movements, and then also we uh, episode eleven shit boxes and the battle of the overpass, uh, which we talk a little bit about the UAW and Walter Reuther.
6: So sorry yeah, if I messed I, up your flow there, but uh, no, actually that's that's fine because um, I will at some point I will list our sources and then. I'm sure in the show notes we'll, we'll find a way to put links. Um, I have lots and, and lots of sources. They're all very good, and you should check them all out to get a better picture of the story, because yeah, how, how good am I really going to do? But <laughs> not there. <laughs> so back to our list of villains. Um, one of the other big villains, which we're probably not going to talk too much about, but he's a real fucking bastard, and you should know his name anyway. Uh, his name is George Meany. He's literally his name was Meany and he was a mean bastard. And uh, he was actually the president of the uh, American Federation of Labor when they merged with the CIO under Walter Ruther. George Meany really sucked. He really, really sucked. So all the
4: critics, the the very firm stance that you should, the union's job was to benefit its workers and basically like to stay out of any sort of societal role, right?
6: Yes. And also that that group of workers that should be protected is like really, really small, (laughs) very particular. Um, And so, yeah, he's a bastard and uh, he controlled a much larger federation of unions than the CIO, which was always the more radical, despite its anti-communist sorts of leanings later on. Was that the guy with the
7: the real bushy eyebrows? George Meany? Or am I thinking of someone else?
6: A lot of people have bushy eyebrows. I'll have to look up a photo of him. He did. Uh, he he was often pictured with a big cigar in his mouth. So he was kind of that image of the, uh, the gruff union leader with the yeah, cigar see? in his mouth and all that.
4: Yeah. You know, all the Soviet prop like anti-capitalist propaganda posters. He was the model.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Other villains we've gotten this story are uh, the mob, uh, the CIA. Of course, that's got to throw that in there. Um, LBJ and president Nixon. So a lot of, you know, familiar names in there um, and some maybe unexpected ones. Like I said, it's a very interesting story. The heroes in this story, which in this case, uh, hero might be a bit of a strong word. So we're going to go with protagonists. Um, Our our main protagonists are going to be Walter, Victor and Roy Ruther, all very involved in the labor movement. They were all brothers, hugely influential. And yeah, that's who the story is about. Um, there are heroes
4: I'm going to be critical of them but make no mistakes that was a family that was dedicated to the labor struggle you can question
1: the way they went about things but they all like at least two of the brothers got shot over this shit yeah
4: Yeah. Um, Walter and Victor both like Victor was the one that had his eye blown out of his fucking head by a shotgun blast right? part two two. I mean I was going to say
5: like not to do real things again but I was going to ask you Brandon since yeah. you're obviously taking the um, the devil's advocate side of everything, like when you say that he had tools in his arsenal that he didn't use, I was going to ask you, like, just in your opinion, do you think he did that because he didn't really believe in the struggle, or because he was just trying to be tactful? Um, and you don't have to answer that question right now. Like, we can sort of get into it later. I don't know.
4: Uh, no, I think that's valid. I, I should preface this with saying that, like, my real introduction to learning about the history of Walter Ruther is rooted in coming across criticisms of him because I started uh, doing research on the Revolutionary Union movement. Mm-hmm. And that's how he kind of came into my like knowledge base was initially strictly from criticisms of him by actual leftists. Yeah. So a lot of what I know about him is critical. And I, I did come originally to be somewhat of the devil's advocate, but like I've kind of softened... On both fronts, where like I don't think he was a strictly good or bad figure. When I said he had other like weapons in his arsenal, like, first of all, I'm saying that from the perspective of somebody who's like about to go on strike. So, sorry, uh, still on mushrooms.
5: Um, I mean, just, just spoiler for me is he based or cringe? That's all I need to know.
6: Like, I don't, <laughs> I'm gonna go with cringe, but like, yeah. you can't question his motives. He was truly dedicated to the working class project. He's cringed um, with based characteristics is what I'm hearing. Yes. Cringe with based
7: characteristics.
5: Sorry, what do you yeah. have, Brian?
7: Um, I was just going to say, there's that uh, documentary um, that, Connor, you shared on the Slack channel. I forget the name of it. Brothers on the Line. Yeah. Um, there's a moment in that where they have a recording of him talking to LBJ and just totally getting cucked by LBJ. Uh, basically, like... LBJ's like, no, you're not going to do anything crazy, are you? And, and Ruther's like, oh, no, I'll be a good boy and and I won't stir the pot too much. <laughs> I'll just be over here eating my soy. Leave me alone.
6: <laughs>
4: okay, one, two, part two. <laughs> I will never question Walter Ruther's genuine early dedication to the labor struggle. He became a politician by the end. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, don't, mm. I don't think that that's really like avoidable in in that part of his story. Um, And in that respect, yeah, he's cringe as fuck But like, I cannot emphasize enough Like, regardless of the dude's motives He got shot, like, a couple of times And had, like, there was the one Sabotage on a plane that he Was supposed to take Oh my god, all the good stuff (laughs) I mean, honestly Everything in this
5: episode is going to be in part two Because we're now at, like, half an hour left Of our set-aside recording time We're
0: obviously going to run over Most of the stuff is going to be in part two But, um, Jaren, sorry, (laughs) you had something? So I'm, I'm not too familiar with his particular story, but there is just an observation about union involvement, organizing and such that kind of falls into actually one of the questions that was asked before. But the thing is, is like, okay, no matter what your opinion is on whether there needs to be a, a full scale revolution to get rid of capitalism. Right. And this is part of like, you know, should unions be political or should they go for the big tent approach? The reality is is like, okay, there are some people who are ready to go to fucking war for this shit, throw everything away, go into conflict and just let the chips fall where they go. And hopefully we get a revolution with better material conditions. And then there's other people who unionize because they just want to get some like better fucking pay for their family. And they don't want to go to war and they just want to have a better life. And no matter what you're manifestation of a union is, you're going to have both of those types of individuals. So if you're leading a union or in a position of power in a union, if you want to keep that union together, even just for bargaining rights, much less overthrowing some shit, you have to placate to both of the camps. So regardless of how big your tent approach becomes, you're going to have to at some point Mitigate with the powers that be in some circumstance. And again, I don't know how this plays into our story here necessarily, but like that is an observation that was made by Albert Parsons, who famously just wanted to fuck up everybody and everything, uh, which was very well warranted. But like, how can you lead people if you tell the man that just wants more money to feed his family? No, that's not our goal. Our goal is to destroy the system. I'm just going
5: to take this opportunity to shout out Daniel Ortega, you know, as espoused by Ramiro Funes on our last couple episodes about Nicaragua, talking about how Daniel Ortega was such a, just a political genius as far as maneuvering his revolution, because he was able to get everyone to follow the the middle path between the ultra-left people who just wanted to burn everything down, and the class collaborationists who wanted to work with the bourgeois, and he was able to find the middle ground between the two and have a successful revolution. So... Just, you know, callback, slight callback, because I just enjoyed uh, Ramiro Funes' info so much when he was talking about Daniel Ortega in that way. Like, for me, Daniel Ortega is a figure now that I think more about than I did before. He's just fucking based in my eyes. But, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Brandon.
0: Basis, but for-
4: I think that's why the story of Walter Reuther is somewhat complicated because at a time when a lot of unions in the U.S. were taking like a meanie approach where it's like I'm, I only give a fuck about a small like subset of people and I only care about like their working conditions and their wages um, Walter Ruther really did force the union into the civil rights struggle too which I will not criticize like he was like he paid bail money to get a bunch of people out of jail after demonstrations and stuff like that like he did good things but he also purged the entire fucking UAW of communists of leftists because like, before he became the president of the uaw
6: we had socialist and communist leaders in the uaw now to be fair i gotta i gotta interrupt here while i don't agree with his purging of communists at the time and he i think he used it to purge people he had a strong political differences with he, he was always an anti-communist so i think he used it to his advantage however we have to understand that the taft hartley act at the time made sure that there were no communists in the unions and they had to sign non-communist affidavits certifying that they did not have communists in their unions. So legally speaking, there was no way around that. I mean, there was lying, there was this and that. Some other tactics could have been used, but by the law, communists were not allowed to be running unions. And so you get into this shaky territory that, you know, we were put into a very rough situation and the taft-hartley act we'll we'll talk about later is pretty disastrous um and it was come up on the one
5: other episode that we did do regarding unions was the one with the iww and they had a lot of good information specifically about the taft-hartley act and i mean the big takeaway from it was that it was disastrous for labor rights in, in the us
6: now i'm not sure if i want to reveal this now or later i think i'm going to wait till later but there was a way that Walter Ruther could have helped to get rid of that part of the Taft-Hartley Act through the Supreme Court. Evidently, though, he didn't choose to do that, and that's kind of a part that's not really talked about very often, is because people don't make that connection. But um, we will get into that a little bit later. So this is where the cringe comes in. I got gotcha. you. This is where the cringe comes in,
4: <laughs> Mike. Let's let's be real. Like, if he had been a genuinely effective anti-capitalist, like no one would have heard of him. Like we're, we're pretty good about burying those fucking people.
5: And I mean, that was my first question. Like, why have I not heard of this guy before? If he's such a, you know, prominent labor organizer and he was such a big figure in leftist history, considering how deep into leftist history I am. And this would be why, because it's not even that so much. It's like an active burying. It's just like, there's other things to talk about. And in an immediate sphere where you have to like focus on one thing or another and everybody's attention span lasts about five minutes. Yeah. You just, Maybe don't talk about him as much, and then people don't know about him.
4: Like, I would say that if, if you're not familiar with Walter Ruther, it's, it's less of the like, innate nature of uh, capitalism's way of uh, washing all of that aside, and more just like there's a lot of fucking history yeah. in the last hundred years. And how many other, you know, uh, union presidents can you name? Like, it's not one of those things that gets taught heavily. Jimmy Hoffa. I can't name my own fucking union president right now. So I think that there's a certain extent to where, cause like he's got archives in like some colleges uh, in Detroit. And I think he's from Wheeling, West Virginia. So I found some information with yep. in archives in his honor there. Like he's not totally forgotten. Honestly, I'm surprised that he's not like put on a pedestal because like he's, he's the fucking RBG of labor rights, man. Like, <laughs>
5: No, don't worry. I'm putting that pussy on a pedestal. All right, sorry. Let's <laughs> yeah. without too much further ado, let's, let's let Connor get into the actual story. Let's start with Walter
6: yeah, Ruther's story. We're setting up this story. All right, Connor. All right. Sorry, I will stop delaying you. No, nope, no, nope, no problem. All right, so um I'll
4: stop delaying you too, Connor. You go ahead and you do your thing.
6: <laughs> All right, so back to our uh, our introduction of the heroes of the story here. Um, so we introduced the uh, Ruther brothers. Our next big hero of the story is going to be Janora Johnson-Dillinger. She's an awesome character. Can't wait till we get into the GM sit-down strike. And, of course, the women's auxiliary and the emergency brigades. I I did make an effort here. um, Women have a tendency to be written out of history or just, you know, forgotten about. Um, In this story, the women's auxiliary played a huge role in the unionization efforts at the big three. Um, So they are incredibly important. And their tactics should absolutely be remembered for future labor struggles. Another hero we've got is uh, Catherine Gels, and she's a hero for punching one of the Ford Service Department goons who were trying to beat up the women there. Our other hero here is going to be Stairs. Hmm? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go ahead and tease this. Uh, I know this story. Oh, do you? This, the Stairs are going to become relevant for April 7th, 1947.
5: Yeah, I mean, you can just listen to the dollop episode for a spoiler, but it's going to take you two hours to get there, so it's not really a spoiler. So. <laughs> yeah, it's not really
6: a spoiler. Yeah, it might take you eight hours to get to it on this stream. We'll we'll see. <laughs> 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 um, and then uh, our last hero is going to be the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, which we've brought up a few times already. So, all right, so let's uh, let's set the scene a little bit here for uh, the story coming up. Um, by the late 1920s, the auto industry was the strongest industry in the United States. So I did, as part of this, uh, listen to a recent Rev Left episode with Professor Peter Cole from Western Illinois University, and he did talk about, you know, kind of the two red scares. So I got uh, some, some valuable information, but uh, the first red scare after World War I and after the Bolshevik Revolution in, you know, Soviet Union Radicals were not uh, particularly well-liked by the U.S. government at this time. So, after World War I, the Wilson administration had some useful tools uh, for dealing with these radicals. They were called the Espionage and Sedition Acts. They used these laws against the IWW, anarchists, communists, and other sorts of socialists. Several hundred wobblies were tried in federal court in 1918 under these laws, and in 1919, Hundreds, potentially even thousands of radicals were deported to the Soviet Union using these laws. Most famously, Emma Goldman, the famous anarchist. So at this time, not a friendly atmosphere for leftists in the United States. This is during rapid you know, industrialization for like the auto industry and some other like steel production, and radicals were kind of... Winning the hearts and minds of workers So obviously the Wilson administration Was using these laws to kind of put that That sort of talk down very quickly So not a friendly atmosphere We're going into By, by countering uh, their, their ideas with other ideas Right? Yeah It,
4: it was a healthy debate
1: yeah,
5: yeah, of course I mean, like for anybody who does not know The history of union struggles, labor struggles In the history of the US It's incredibly violent, a lot of deaths involved a lot of like armed private security guards, the Pinkertons and everything. Just uh, don't think that for any second that liberals actually want to engage in any kind of debate when it comes to workers' rights. They just want to like put you down with yeah, violence, basically.
0: Yeah, I mean, with it's shit like Blair Mountain that literally dropped bombs on uh, yeah. union
6: workers. Unfortunately, I think one of the takeaways from this story is that going forward in the 21st century, things are probably going to get a lot worse before they get better. You know, before we win anything, we're going to go back to strikers being killed. I think that's just capital. will do what capital has done for as long as it's existed. And the reason strikers don't die today is because as of right now, unions are so weak, but get a little bit of power back and we're going to see how much those liberals really want to debate or how much the conservatives really believe in free speech Kind of you're right on board with us. We end every episode, it
5: seems now, by talking about bark beetles, water wars or some other kind of doom scrolling that we're doing lately. So you're right. on Yeah.
6: Yeah. I mean, and that's why I think it's important to learn from this this story. Um, I think we have to be realistic in we've pursued strategies in the past. And let's I mean, here's what they say and here's what they mean. I mean, we've got a constitution that gives people free speech. But um, I just showed you that when that free speech becomes a problem, uh, people get deported. Anyway, so um, back at this time, uh, there was kind of a different philosophy for organizing workers. And that philosophy was largely led by the AFL or the American Federation of Labor, which they covered roughly about 10 percent of auto workers were considered skilled workers. And the rest were just not unionized at all. They had no worker protections whatsoever. um, And back at this time, if you were not working fast enough, you were beat. So it was just a very different time there. There was no problem with management just beating the shit out of people you know they would take people out of the bathroom if they thought they were taking too long and like they'd beat them up and they'd pull them off the toilet practically or not even practically like they literally did that there were stories of that so uh yeah brandon
4: is it a problem if i take a moment to comment on how like the more i read about labor for the last 150 years like in the industrialized world how little progress we've actually made because yep I feel like the story that I was presented growing up was always like, oh, back in like Victorian England, these people had to work 20 hour shifts and blah, blah, blah. And look at how far we've come because, you know, school is indoctrination. They're all about wanting you to know how much better you have it. But don't ask for more. You already have it so good. Don't ask for more. The more I fucking read, it's like, no, it's like minors at the turn of the century were getting murdered and Auto workers in the 50s and 60s would just get fucking murdered like all of this is the story of fighting like hell and you still end up working an 18 hour day and I partially say that because as I mentioned earlier but I'm a little bit more lucid right now like we're about to go on strike because nobody's getting like beaten up and pulled out of the bathroom but they are being refused to go like producers are not letting people go to the bathroom to the point where like A recurring complaint that I have been coming across is bladder problems and infections and stuff like that from having to work an 18 hour shift with almost no restroom breaks.
6: Yeah, that's gross.
4: I read an account of a woman who miscarried on set, but was asked to finish a couple more hours before she left. Like, yeah, that's this isn't the 19th. 50s, the 1930s, this isn't like freshly industrialized fucking London. This is a story from earlier this year. Yeah. My union has a nine hour turnaround rule that I've like had violated on for me on the second week on set. And our union is weak enough that people are just like, yeah, it happens. Just we got your back. Go take a nap in the corner. That was it. My brothers working were cool about it, but the actual union was just like, yeah, shit happens. Yeah pretty shitty, so, pretty yeah, shitty. Like, I know that's a tangent but like I cannot emphasize enough that like reformist politics have failed us yeah how dare no, you, you
5: not go on any tangents on this podcast I know what you guys are doing in your like little rinky dink kind of podcast over there with the cars and comrades thing but here let's <laughs> turn that's a podcast we stay on fucking topic <laughs>
0: <laughs> we definitely don't break any fingers or toes Mike's back on the bottle again Sorry,
2: buddy. <laughs> I just came back from getting a beer. Uh, remember that like union leader that had the uh, hidden cameras like outside of his fucking house? All of them, you mean? Well, yeah, <laughs> I know. Like, there's like one bigger story that like
6: came out about it. Uh, it could be Walter Ruler. J. Edgar Hoover pretty much stalked this guy for a very long time.
4: Hated him. Yeah, yeah, and, and Victor. Was it Hoover who said that Walter Ruther was a bigger threat to like US democracy than the Soviet Union or No,
6: something? no, it was I think that was a senator. I think it was uh, Barry Goldwater, if I'm not mistaken, oh, of oh course. My God, oh yeah, fuck. Cool. Didn't uh <laughs> didn't
7: Hillary Clinton campaign for him back in the day? They didn't. <laughs> yep.
6: No, no. I mean, she would have probably, but no, she did. She did.
4: I don't know if you're kidding.
5: No, I'm not, I'm not joking, she did.
4: Now I can't tell if you're kidding even more.
6: God damn it, please. <laughs> don't make me google this. I mean, if you're serious, that is just shocking.
2: Is it Take really? Is it that shocking? Joke if. No, but I want it to be.
4: <laughs> I don't know. I always thought of the Clintons as so pure and clean. and Now this is my perception of them. <laughs>
5: um, okay, so did Hillary Clinton work for Goldwater? This is on factcheck.org. She was a high school young Republican and a quote Goldwater girl in 1964, but swung to supporting Democrat Eugene McCarthy's <laughs> campaign in 1968 and George
2: McGovern's in <laughs> 1972. Nice. Holy Imagine being a Goldwater girl. That's like—is <laughs> that like worse the
0: worst than like the
2: Women for Trump? It's definitely worse than the Mickey Mouse
4: Club. It's it's Jesus Mickey Mouse Club. Jesus Christ. Political career supporting Barry Goldwater and fucking who? Who did you say was next? My short-term memory yeah. is still a little wonky.
5: Well, McGovern after that, which McGovern is uh,
7: uh, yeah. a little better, but. Mm. Hardly. I mean, I, mean, uh, I guess that can be forgiven a so. little bit. I was a right winger when I was young and j- voted for George Bush. Yeah, uh, once. Get off the boat. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
7: I can, Yeah. I mean, it's not like uh, Clinton uh, went full communist or anything, but she did. Uh, you know, I don't know. Whatever. That'd be it. She still sucks. <laughs> yeah, um, still sucks. Right. Since, since I just barged in with my new drink and
5: derailed everything, and okay. uh, no one on my <laughs> drunken rant. Jaron, you probably have to go in a couple of minutes.
0: you want to just do your plug and then bounce if you need to? Yeah, yeah. But I'll be on for the next one when we uh, resume this story because I do want to hear the well, not not even just the conclusion, just the the meat of it here. But uh yeah, my website is jaronperlman.com, J A R O N P E A R L M A N. You can buy either one of my books there. Um and the next one should be out this winter. But yeah, it's been nice to meet you guys. I look forward to hearing more. Yeah, yeah. yeah nice to you, you
5: too. meet you too. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, sorry, uh, tonight we didn't really get to a whole lot. Uh, Yeah, definitely Mike is back on the bottle, so anything I contribute is going to get cut in post, but (laughs) we'll see how (laughs) they go. No, Uh, I don't think you should
0: leave it. All right, later. later.
6: (laughs) All right, continue, Connor. Okay. At the the AFL convention back in 1935, there was a labor leader named John L. Lewis, uh, and he was the leader of the United Mine Workers. So, at the convention... He created the Committee for Industrial Organization within the AFL. So this was the early CIO, back when it was still part of the American Federation of Labor. Within a year, the AFL suspended the unions involved with the CIO, and those unions broke off then to create the Congress of Industrial Organizations. So this is actually where the UAW first comes from. It was created as part of the CIO within the AFL. So then there was the split uh, back in 1936. And after that, it was then the UAW as organized under the CIO. That's the guy I was thinking of with the bushy eyebrows. Oh, yes. I know. That's very important. He did have very (laughs) bushy eyebrows. Yes. Incredibly
7: bushy eyebrows. Like Brezhnev levels.
6: (laughs) And so the split happened after the Wagner Act was signed in 1935, which was the act that essentially gave unions... The right to essentially exist in a legal sort of framework, uh, and it gave the workers the right to collectively bargain. The new CIO wanted to organize all workers, regardless of you know gender, race, or skill level. So this was that different sort of approach to union organizing. Like the AFL wanted to remain with only skilled workers and, frankly, white workers and men at that. The CIO wanted to take a much broader approach. So the Wagner Act is actually the National Labor Relations Act of 1935. And it created the NLRB that we're so familiar with, and it codified unions into a legal structure. So the CIO was focused on unionizing auto and steel workers at the time, because those were pretty much the largest growing industries. And they had a lot of unskilled workers and really, really horrific conditions. You know, they were brutal to workers. They literally beat their workers. Workers would die, lose fingers, limbs in the machinery all the time. Um, they break their pinky toes.
4: <laughs> also, weirdly, a problem that my union is still having as of this year.
6: <laughs> Great. Wonderful.
4: Yeah, like we keep having people falling asleep driving home from like, their 30th consecutive 18-hour shift, and they fall asleep at the wheel and crash. Ugh. So, like, yeah, we're not literally being beaten, but like... Basically exporting the violence to just after work.
6: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, been there, not fun. Not fun.
4: I think like somehow I'm radicalizing myself on air right now. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah, like, all you gotta do is like think about it more and you're just like, yeah, I'm way more radical now. Yeah, it's just I sucks, mean...
4: <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to reminisce about my like days when I was a more conservative like Stalinist. <laughs> I don't
5: think you know what those words mean. <laughs> you
4: no, know, I'm saying I'm I'm ready to start like seriously embracing leftism and move past like all that stuff and go full insurrectionist.
2: Oh, I mean just embrace the tank, dude.
4: <laughs> you and I will get along great. Right? <laughs>
2: Poor Jaron just surrounded by us.
4: <laughs> I find it funny. I,
6: I actually I genuinely uh do identify quite a bit with Jaron and his a lot of his takes, but I do find it very funny that. Uh, while he's like actually writing books and stuff, I'm trying to get my stupid like daily driven race car put together.
4: when you guys said he had written books. I'm like, who yeah. the fuck are we talking to, man? I'm a fucking I'm a that can't get my car running. Like,
1: <laughs> different folks are different folks.
5: <laughs> Unironically, Jaron has the best opinions on our podcast. Like, he legit does. And yeah. as much as like, Please. there's three tankies. One kind of unidentified that's Cosper, and then Jaron is the professed anarchist. We all follow him because honestly, like he has the best opinions. Like he's the most well read. Like, I don't know about you, Ward, but like I just I just really love China. That's my thing. Yeah, I just love Daddy G and and Papa Stalin. But (laughs) the reason we love Jaron so much is because he agrees with all our takes. Like he agrees that authoritarianism is fine as long as you're using it against Nazis. You know, it's it's totally fine to like your exploitative boss until he gives you a raise. Just as it's fine to lock up some Nazis until they see the error of their ways. But, um.
4: I, so similar to that vibe, like, I more or less reject the label of authoritarianism because, one, it's always applied in a single direction and it's always applied left. Well, I shouldn't say that. Like, there's obvious exceptions, but, like, it, when it's thrown around real haphazardly, it's always towards the left. And it's kind of dismissive of the fact that there are things that need tightly controlled, and they're usually, like, Capitalists. So yeah, like if yeah, I'm authoritarianism. Like yeah, let's do it.
5: I call it preemptive defense.
4: I call it the dictatorship of bourgeoisie. Wait, no, I fucked the way out. around the other yeah. way.
2: Mushrooms. writing <laughs> <laughs> the fucking
4: waves, and I'm really fucking struggling. One minute I think I've got it together, and the other time I can't think of like words that I use on a fucking hourly basis. So yeah, yeah. you were good.
6: You got it. Sorry, kind of. go ahead. Uh, all right. Um, so back right to it. Um, so the CIO did have some early success organizing uh, General Motors plants, first in the South and then in Detroit. Uh, unionizing Ford was going to be a much more difficult task. Uh, and that is where the Ruthers come in. So back in the early days, that was kind of their push was to go after the auto plants, but in a different way than the AF of L was doing it. So they kind of had this broad vision. And as part of that, the UAW was created. Now, it wasn't actually Walter Ruther and Victor Ruther were not the first presidents of the UAW, although they are probably the most famous. But the UAW itself was actually first run by someone else. So we will get to that. But a little more on Walter Ruther and just like his early life. He was born September 1st, 1907 in Wheeling, West Virginia. His parents were Valentine Ruther and Anna Stocker. And his siblings were Victor, Roy, Ted, and Christine. Um, so we don't hear too much about Ted uh, and Christine. I don't think they play a huge role in the organizing efforts, but obviously Victor and Roy did. So their father was a union organizer, and he instilled progressive values in the Ruther children at a very young age. As children, they were taught to be against racism and sexism and all that. Uh, you know, And back in those days, I mean, we were talking very early 1900s, so that was somewhat unusual um, their father was a lifelong socialist i don't believe he was a communist uh, per se but their father was uh, in fact a socialist which is how walter identified for a very long time uh, as well uh, nice. now he was the uh, walter did become the fourth president of the uaw and he was president from 1946 until his death in 1970 which is of course why we're talking about him on our car podcast Him, you know kind of makes sense there he was also the third president of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, from 1952 to 1955, which, if you're paying attention, is not a very long time to be president, uh, and that is because at that time, the CIO remerged with the AFL, and we have today the AFL-CIO. Now, throughout, uh, throughout this story, he did survive a couple of assassination attempts, um, and he did die under suspicious circumstances that many believed to be successful assassination. Of course, it looks very much like an accident. So, you know, the truth will maybe never truly be known, but we can we could probably make some guesses, some very educated guesses.
4: It's always fun to lean into conspiracy theory and all, but it kind of sounded like it wasn't that fucking ambiguous.
6: It wasn't. It was not.
5: I mean, like literally one item on the entire plane is wrong and out of spec and then causes the entire plane to crash. It's like it's a little suspicious. Oh, Oh, it's it's not not even that.
4: that. Problems with the even more suspicious.
6: Again, this is part two, so don't skip this part if if you don't want spoilers. But <laughs> there was more than actually just the altimeter on the plane. Uh, there was problems with the runway and the approach that were likely problems right before landing. So it does imply that there was some sabotage at the actual landing site as well.
5: That's right. I did see that in the documentary. Um, I forgot about that. Thank you.
6: Yeah. And I yep. think wasn't it the day after he uh, came out in opposition to the Vietnam War? Yes, but I'm gonna go right ahead and say it takes a lot longer to plan an assassination. So okay, okay. yeah, I'm gonna go right ahead and, and nip that one in the bud. Um, I mean, not ironically,
5: the most base take on his death probably was from Michael Parenti in that article, and then the subsequent yeah. interview that he did. Yep, it was Parenti. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's just um, yeah. just some dude who has some good takes once in a while.
4: <laughs> I was so actually surprised, like. A lot of my fondness for Walter Rother is because of Parenti's fondness for him. Like,
6: Yeah, he was, I will say this, Parenti was uncharacteristically kind to Walter, I think. Perhaps even a little bit much, I might say, for Parenti, but um, I understand where he was coming from. Like we said, it's a complicated story for sure. Kind of the broad strokes here of what uh, Parenti was going for uh, in his article and in the interview that I, I did listen to. You can find it on YouTube. It's great. He described Walter Ruther as one of the most progressive labor leaders in the U.S. Um, He does note that Walter was incorruptible and could not be bought off, which is important in a labor leader.
4: All right, you heard it here, folks. Michael Parenti's cringe.
6: (laughs) What?
5: Oh, no, 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 no. no, no, no. All right, just to save face, I'm just connecting, like, half the people in this podcast right now.
2: (laughs) Yep, Brandon, Um, enjoy the rest of your trip. Goodbye.
6: (laughs)
4: I'm not allowed to stay on this long. No, we love you. Um,
6: so Parenti did, you know, say that I would like to point out that maybe while Walter could not be bought off or corrupted, he did get a little complacent and perhaps a little bit less radical in his later years. Uh, and I think that's a probably a fair critique. But despite that, it seems like he got killed anyway. So a whole lot of good that did. He he not only fought for the rank and file, but he he did have a broader class agenda. And I think that is what Michael Parenti actually appreciated about Walter Ruther was he didn't have that narrow scope. He wanted to change society as a whole. Um, He wanted to fight for environmental protection, for racial equality, gender equality, you name it. I mean, he had a pretty broad uh, sort of approach and he wanted the best for working people ultimately. He may have thought that the way to get there was anti-communism, but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I suppose. There was a quote uh, that I thought is actually pretty important and emblematic of his approach, uh, and that was, the labor movement is about changing society. What good is a dollar an hour more in wages if your neighborhood is burning down?
4: Yeah, what I actually th- really like that quote. Yeah.
6: What good is another week's vacation if the lake you used to go to, to where you have a cottage is polluted and you can't swim in it? And the kids can't play in it. What good is another $100 pension if the world goes up in atomic smoke? And I think that sort of sentiment is what made him a good labor leader in a lot of ways. That is kind of the right approach. So he did have a lot of the right ideas. He just was a little cringe sometimes.
5: Sounds like he was doom scrolling too.
6: (laughs) I mean, yeah, the 20th century was all about uh, a lot of doom in in the 20th century.
4: So glad we're past
6: all that now. Yeah, I know. I know.
7: Yeah,
2: things are so great now. We right? got Trump power. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Back to brunch. We <laughs> want midterms coming up. Don't stir the boat.
6: That's true. Yeah. Don't do anything crazy right before the midterms. The Democrats gotta win, right? Right. That's good. Absolutely. I'm glad everyone agrees. <laughs> <laughs> So let's kind of just take a brief look at like his early kind of life and his upbringing and his later political development. So the father obviously was a union organizer and he did instill progressive values into the Ruther children at a very young age. Like he deliberately, it it wasn't just like in passing, they had like, he taught his kids to debate amongst each other and like learn actual socialist values and stuff. So they were educated in it from an early age. And in 1927, uh, at the age of 19, Walter moved to Detroit and he got a job at Ford. This is noteworthy. He like talked himself into a very skilled position that supposedly required 25 years experience, uh, at least for the job listing. And he apparently talked his way into it. And not only did that, he actually impressed in the role. So um, he was from an early age recognized as someone who was very smart.
4: Like, incredibly yeah, was, so. Doing tool and die work, which I can fucking attest to is fucking awful. Like, it's yeah. very difficult. It's, it's actually fun in a, a certain way, but it's very difficult work.
6: is it yeah. tool and die work? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So he talked his way into this position. He did very, very well at it. Um, it was hard work, and that was part of him getting involved in organizing, but it was very, very hard work, and he was in fact good at it. So in 1932, so he'd been working there for five years, he was fired for organizing a rally for Norman Thomas, who was running for president of the United States as the nominee for the Socialist Party of America. Ford claimed he quit, but Walter has always maintained that he was fired for his increasingly visible socialist tendencies. So we've seen this story before. Oh, no, he quit. And it's like, no, no, I was just you knew what was up. Um, So, of course, Ford fired him for that. This is when Walter and Victor actually took the opportunity to travel the world. And by the world, I mean that included Europe and Asia, uh, which was Russia, China, India and Japan um, and obviously Europe. So this is noteworthy. When Henry Ford retired the Model T in 1927, he sold the production mechanisms to Russia. Uh, And American workers who knew how to operate the equipment were needed in the Soviet Union so they could teach workers how to actually produce the cars in Russia at the time. Now, Walter and Victor were promised work teaching Russian workers how to run the machines and assembly line. With that employment assurance, the brothers embarked on a three-year adventure, first bicycling through Europe and then working in the auto plant in Gorky, Russia. And they were there for about two years working in the plant now, it does note the auto plant in Gorky, Russia, where the unheated factories were often 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit below zero, Ooh. which is very yeah. fucking cold.
4: Yeah. If true. I don't fucking buy it.
6: It could be a little embellishment. Walter does uh, like to embellish, I think.
4: Yeah, I was, I was going to say, like, I read that and it immediately sent up huge red flags because at 40 below, machinery will no longer operate. Like, for no, your
6: Oh, for- no, your car will start. I mean... We saw some of those uh, days a couple years ago, way up north. It gets that cold, and shit somehow works.
4: I don't know, man. To me, it's it's a red flag. It seems like tinged with anti-communism. Like, was it all fucking cold? 100% I buy that. 40 below means that in, like, 1930s sort of warm weather gear, you are so... Dress for the cold. Maybe they were willing to just throw workers into the meat grinder, but that's the sort of thing where you're wearing equipment that's going to get caught in the machinery. It's going to fucking murder you. Uh, none of the greases, the oils, the coolants are going to, like, unless you're down to start putting antifreeze in your fucking coolant, then no, like, things will simply not operate properly. Also, like you can't hold a tolerance if it's forty below. Now, granted, Go like ahead. manufacturing in the Soviet Union Maybe was, you bro. what's that?
5: Maybe you bro. My talents is pretty good. I don't know about you, bro. <laughs>
4: okay, so my background is I've I for the last five years I was a machinist and welder. So I I can attest that I've had tight enough tolerances that if I held it in my fist, it would be out of tolerance. Because the heat expansion, when you're talking about like one or two tenths of Like my, my closest job, which I always got handed because I was one of the only people who could r- routinely hold the tolerance was plus or minus one ten thousandths of an inch. So you had to be like you had to let it sit out in the shop air for a little bit to reach room temperature before you measured it. Because if I ran coolant over it, it would contract and measure small. And if I would hold it in my hand, it would expand and measure large. So at 40 below, you cannot hold a real tolerance. Yo, Brian, what's up?
7: Um, I just looked up weather stats for Gorky, and it gets down to, like, negative 11 in the winter, but Uh, I don't don't see it
6: No, Yeah, (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) Yeah, maybe a little bit of embellishment here. So we're hearing some exaggerations is what we're getting at. Yeah, Yeah. expect to see more of those.
4: I wanted to specifically address that, though, because to me, it's just tinged with anti-communism.
7: Yeah, I guess... I mean, if machinery is constantly running in a enclosed space, it will heat the space somewhat. So even if it is negative thirty below outside, there's no way the yeah. interior of a machine shop is that cold. It's
4: just it's yeah. Not yeah. Cold. a really good point. Yeah, yeah. it's just Walter's the friction and heat and body heat. And it's just okay. So here's the, the takeaway.
6: Here's the here's the takeaway. Walter Ruther was walking to school both ways uphill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <No. laughs> possible. <laughs> Um, so given this, he was, you know, working in these conditions, he frequently wrote letters to the Moscow Daily News criticizing the many inefficiencies associated with how the communists operated the plants. And I, I did make this note this might have a little to do with Walter's later anti communism, probably more than a little. Um, so the, I mean, cringe, yeah, cringe. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, Start to interrupt again
7: so shortly, but did this guy literally hate communism because he went to the USSR and got cold one time? Because that's, <laughs> that's kind of what right. it seems like,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. went cold, bro. Yeah, bro. <laughs>
4: <laughs> okay, we're not to work on this too much, but at this point, it's worth addressing that like 15 years before this, the USSR was like a peasant state, like it was a feudal yeah. state, yeah. So, like, this guy's like. Oh, their industry is not super well-developed in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
4: <laughs> like, oh, communism's bad because it didn't fix every problem in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs>
6: um, okay, so anyway, Walter complained a lot about things in Russia and whatnot. And they did regularly write letters back home while they were uh, working in Russia and this is going to become very relevant in part two or possibly part three. Whatever. We'll see. But they wrote letters home and sometimes this got used against them in the future and they were accused of being communists, which, again, Walter and Victor could not be anything further from communists. Well, I mean, OK, I suppose they
4: could be further.
6: But, OK, excuse me, but you get what I'm saying. So they spent all this time going through Europe, Russia, and then they went down through Asia, India, China, and Japan, and then they came back to the States and upon his return he became president of the newly formed local 174 on Detroit's west side with his brother Victor, and when interviewed about it he kind of said that, you know, he didn't have any actual official authority to be the president of this local, but him and Victor started this local and they affiliated with the UAW and they were just the, the leaders. Um, they hadn't really organized anybody yet, but that's that was them getting started. So, uh, with his brother Victor, they led a successful strike against the automotive giants at Kelsey Hayes, which we'll talk about later, and they supplied brake drums and wheels to the Ford Motor Company. The main complaint was that the speed-up of the assembly line was intolerable. Workers were losing limbs and even their own lives trying in vain to keep up with the ever-increasing speed of the assembly line. So... We've seen this story before, lines speed up, people get hurt, people can't keep up, and it's just fucking horrific.
4: It's so, horrible. And you can expect to happen when human life is treated as a commodity. Yep.
6: Yeah, pretty much. Thanks, Taylor. Fucking gross. So it was December 1936 when the workers pulled a surprise strike and sat down in the plant, refusing to leave until management negotiated with their representative, Walter there. When management tried to enter the plant and remove machinery, thousands of sympathizers swarmed the sidewalks and blocked the doorways. Uh, Ford needed those brake drums and wheels really, really bad. And after 10 days of striking, the side settled. So the first major UAW victory to unionize the auto factories had been won. Upon Ruther's insistence, women won equal pay for equal work. So this is pretty notable for the time. And that pay was 75 cents an hour. Uh, the speed up of the assembly line was slowed down and the company could not fire a worker for joining the union. UAW Local 174's... Oh, I'm sorry, what? Brian had something.
7: Oh, I was so just going to say, um, I think was this the strike where they were um, like throwing door hinges nope. at, the, at the Ford goons or was that a different one? That was one? a different okay. one.
6: So this was the first use of the sit-down strike in Detroit, I believe. So that was a new strike tactic, which for listeners who may not know, The sit-down strike was different from other forms of strikes as it prevented strike breakers. So in a traditional strike, uh, workers walk off the job and they go out and they picket. This allows management to still use the plant. So if they can bring in scabs, they can use that machinery and keep operating at least to some limited capacity. The sit-down strike was when workers actually took over the plant and they refused to do any work. So literally nothing could be done. So this was an early victory uh, using this in the north. I'm not sure if this was the first sit-down strike in the country, but certainly it was in the North. So I think there were a couple of successes in the South uh, before this, but it could be wrong. So anyway, this was an incredibly innovative strike tactic, and it was devastating to capital. And so this was used to win a lot of labor struggles uh, in the early days of the UAW. And of course, in this case, they were asking for equal pay for women, which at the time... Women were getting paid far, far less than the men in these plants, even when those women did plenty more work than some of the men, including Victor, who did note that some of the women he worked with did like almost double the kind of output he was doing. And he made, I think, more than double what they were paid. So the company couldn't fire workers for joining the union and the locals 174 membership expanded from 200 before the strike to 35,000 within the next year. So this was the first major win, and this is essentially what started kind of the push to organize the big three, which was Ford, Chrysler, and GM. So that's kind of where the story goes. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Kelsey Hayes sit down strike probably in the next episode. It is important to to know, you know, sort of the tactics they used. So there's a little bit more to the story, but uh, that's essentially the early creation and running of the UAW and kind of where Uh, Walter and Victor Ruther come from. So hopefully that was a little intro and hopefully your listeners and our listeners, our listeners definitely like the sidetracks, I like to tell myself. Hopefully your (laughs) listeners do too.
5: I mean, (laughs) I will say we we put it up to a vote in our Discord as to whether or not we would keep the cold opens, which are just whatever parts of us bullshitting before we actually start the recording proper that I find it entertaining enough to put into the intro. And then people voted overwhelmingly to keep that. And then the only idea I've come up with so far to make our podcast slightly more quote unquote professional would be to only make that available to Patreon subscribers and then have a normal episode without that. But I also feel I weird about that. creating a tier in that way. Like we don't even have tiers on our Patreon because I just, I you know, we're communists. Like that's not. Well, we don't even have <laughs> listeners.
4: So you're one up on it. Our- <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
5: your stats got to say otherwise. Let's see your Podbean or your Libsyn or
6: whatever it is. Oh, we're embarrassed by it. You don't want to see it. <laughs> I mean, all of ours are from Langley, so... We didn't have
4: the numbers, but it was literally like 420,
7: 69 or something like that. Oh, yeah. There's one where it was like 420 requests and 69 confirmed downloads or something like that, so I took a screenshot of that. Nice.
4: (laughs) It was pretty nice.
7: Yeah, and we're using the world's worst podcast hosting called a Shout Engine. so don't go with that if you're...
4: Yeah, we don't trust the numbers at all.
6: Yeah, exactly. Very
7: sketchy. It's like CCP numbers. It's like Nobody nobody
2: believes that. <laughs> CPC Mike. <laughs> you fucking stickler. Every time. Dude, you fucking trigger me so hard with that shit. I do it on purpose. I know you do. <laughs> See, you just internalize the propaganda so much. No, I, I am
5: proudest. Like I said in the Discord, I am most proud of radicalizing Ward because not even a year ago, this guy literally thought Trump might go to jail after getting out of office. And I was like, buddy, buddy, buddy. And now this guy... <laughs> He is the tankiest tank that ever tanked. I love seeing it. Thank you, Mike. In time, buddy.
4: I feel at home here.
5: We, we just love tanks. I just
7: think they're neat. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have thought about, like, maybe we could do an episode in the future about tanks. But I don't know a whole lot about tanks. I don't know. I just think that would be funny to just do a whole thing about the T-34. I mean, we but... could definitely find enough material to talk about for
5: an hour with sidetracks about the T-34. Oh, especially yeah. with you guys. Like, with the car guys, of course.
4: Ford made a motor for one of their tanks that I could talk about for an hour, which like, you're not going to do right now. <laughs>
7: <laughs> wasn't there like a Chrysler one that was like 30 cylinders or something?
4: Dude, uh, Ford made a V8 for tanks that was over a thousand cubic inches. Yeah, a aluminum block.
6: A thousand cubic inches?
4: Over it, like it was like a thousand and four, I think.
6: And it and that was a V8, right? I think so.
4: That's I think they made a VC version of Jesus. it and too. The core spacing had to have been gargantuan, dude. It was. I, w- yeah, I bet it I had a two-foot stroke. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, you don't want me to talk for an hour, but you're trying. Okay, to I'm done. right, 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 right. <laughs> Now, ladies. Of motor. All right, all right. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's a good place to leave it. Five to six-inch stroke without <laughs> massive engineering feats because. you... Just
2: we're underestimating the power of the mushrooms.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I right, know, seriously. It's all me, man. I'm all motor right now.
5: Um, we will definitely have an upcoming series on the T-34 with the Cars and Comrades podcast. But until then, let me let you guys take the floor and plug wherever social, social media you would like to and uh, talk about your podcast, give our listeners, if they haven't already got an idea of what they'd be getting if they come to your podcast. But uh, just tell us about it and where they can find you guys.
6: Uh, so our podcast is... Um... I mean, I'll I'll plug the social media. I'll let Brian explain what our podcast is because he knows that stuff better than me. Um, but you, you can find Brian. us, I hope, I don't know. <laughs> so you can find us on all the usual social media places by searching Cars and Comrades. So we're on Instagram at Cars and Comrades podcast. Same with Twitter, same with Facebook. We're not super on Facebook too much because we're lazy, but maybe we'll post there more. I don't know. Uh, we're also on Hexbear, which is apparently the old Chapo chat, um, and yep. I guess they changed their name. Yeah, so we are we're there. We're on Reddit. You know, I share all kinds of car memes and stuff. I try when I can make leftist car memes, which you know, word you got to face difficult.
2: It's, I feel like that's really difficult.
6: You know what? It works out a lot of the time. It works it, out. Like it, you it, can. It,
4: is so fucking good at it that in the last month two of my friends separately have hit me up like yo do you know uh, have you ever heard of this cars and comrades podcast like i keep seeing their stuff online and it sounds like something that you would be into and i'm like yeah yeah it does doesn't it
6: (laughs) so i make it work you know you can tie the two together so yeah you can find us online there and then you guys should also explain kind of what your podcast is uh, for our listeners as well. But Brian, why don't you explain what our ethos is or whatever?
7: Yeah, I mean, if I had to describe it, I'd say we we talk about car stuff from a leftist perspective. I mean, I guess the idea going in was a lot of car media is like real reactionary and just kind of gross, a lot of toxic masculinity. So we're trying to avoid that as much as possible and just, you know, bring our own uh, leftist perspective. And, of course, we do talk about, you know, political theory and how politics intersects with the car world. And, like, I thought maybe that would be difficult going into it. But, you know, really, capitalism fucks us all in multitude of ways. So it, there's the dearth of material to pull from. But, um,
4: yeah, I guess, like, I've tried the best when we start talking about the intersection between like cars and, and like, labor history. Because it, yeah. it's intricately linked. So,
7: yeah, definitely. And I guess like um, we've had plenty of people say like, oh, you all are, uh, you know, reactionary because your hobby uh, contributes to global warming. We talked about this a little bit, but like I forget who said this. Um, I I want a world where, um, you know, there's public transit and owning a car is like owning a horse is today. It's a weird hobby for weirdos. And make no mistake, like, if you're really into cars, you're a weirdo. Like, you're a nerd. Maybe it's, like, has some mainstream cachet because it's a masculine hobby or whatever, uh, but it's still nerdy, you know? Like, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Appreciation for cars is, like, macho and and cool,
4: like, obsessing over, like, the finest details of them and, like, stuff like that gets real deep into nerd territory. Definitely, yeah.
6: Yeah. It's just fun. Cars are fun, yeah. Like going fast and shit. It's Getting like sideways. You know,
7: <laughs> guns are fun too. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I, <laughs> I will say
5: my infatuation with cars goes as far as Top Gear with James May, Richard Hammond, and uh, Jeremy Clarkson. That's about it. And yeah, which while they're fun on the show,
6: they're fun on the show. Um, they're pretty reactionary in oh, in definitely. real life. Yeah, they're definitely
5: their politics are shit. I will I won't stand up for any of them outside <laughs> of that show, but. On that show for those however many seasons they lasted on, that was my shit. But what yeah. I really liked about that was the star and reasonably priced car because I always imagined driving my Corolla around a track like that and what I could do if I didn't have all these fucking mouth breathers in the way in the left lane when they shouldn't be in the left lane because they don't know how to drive. <laughs> like, that's the passing lane. You should be passing people if you're in that lane. Like, get the fuck out of
6: my way. When am I to get to work? But anyway... By the way, um, which, which I, I want to make a note, uh, there's forms of racing for everything, and you can be into fucking anything. Um, yeah. In autocross, I'm you can autocross your little Corolla. If I can bring my Corolla to
5: autocross, and I could, I understand, but I'm not going to do that, because it's just embarrassing you hate fun for me.
6: Because you're a you're a yeah. fun-hating tanky. You see? <laughs> currently trying to get into dirt track racing, which if I could speculate, might be the single most reactionary form of racing. It's like, that crowd
4: is just like the worst. So I cannot wait to get my own dirt track car and just be so abrasive.
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I've seen people drag race minivans like on a drag racing track. So like, yeah, but you know, you guys are making fun of them. I know you're making fun of them on the sidelines.
4: <laughs> oh, it depends. That's, That's, my point. That's my point. That's
5: why I'm not bringing the Corolla.
4: Okay. I'm a van to drag rates, So maybe I'm not making fun of them. Yeah. Maybe
5: you are. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, um is there anything else you guys like to plug as far as your podcast or your social media is concerned?
6: No, I think that's uh, I think that's all we got. Would you mind uh, just explaining re- briefly what uh, what your guys's podcast is about and all that for our listeners who might be interested in oh, yeah. some learning? Oh,
4: that's sick. You guys have a podcast?
6: <laughs>
5: no, 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 no. If you guys like to check out the Turn Lessons podcast, it is basically we have no nuance. We're turn leftists. Like we're just trying to turn people leftists. So if you want to listen to a bunch of uh, unabashed red fast tankies talk about why they <laughs> love Stalin and Mao so much, and then one anarchist who will type in with some reasonable takes, um, yeah, come check out the Turn Leftist podcast. No car talk whatsoever. Sorry. Uh, it was much more succinct uh, than ours was. Wow, we should we could really learn a lot from you guys. That was on the fly. Ward, do you have anything else you'd like to add?
2: Anything you missed? <laughs> uh, yeah, we covered current events sometimes some historical events uh, some debunking here and there but yeah mostly just red fast tankies turn people <laughs> leftist
4: yeah i'm on our podcast to debunk the myth that 300 horsepower is a lot
2: <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like a lot to me
4: trying to build my van to make a thousand
2: oh, fuck <laughs> <laughs> all right um ward go ahead and plug your instagram yeah, I'm on Instagram at Millennial Leftist, common spelling, no underscore. And uh, I'm on Twitter at wardlolly, W A R D L A W L E Y. Hell yeah, buddy. All right. So I guess for Sterling, I'll plug our Twitter. That's uh, Twitter slash
5: turn Leftist Pod. And then Jaron already plugged his website, of course. For Cosper, I'll plug their Patreon. That is patreon.com slash C O S P E R underscore. And then for everything else, you can find us on the at Lintry slash turn Leftist. And I will of course shout out again our Patreon subscribers, Stuart, Pete, Colton, Ian, Michael, not me, L. Robert, Allison, Zach, James, Rave Enigma, Marvin, K Hrida, Not Drinking Water Sixty Nine, A second James, Mike, Mad Boy, Christian, Elam, Venture X, Jared has the best opinions, Jared, Hayden, another Jared, Bill Killionaires, Bro You No Mark, David, Tristan, Devontae, Your Mother, Charlotte, a third James, Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, MC, John Bowie Fan 420, Aaron, Kyle, Jean Claude Manhans, Male, Bill, Blackwater Janitor, and Jay Reese.
4: Those are all your Patreons? Like, so people actually listen to your show. That's impressive. No. no. <laughs>
5: Um, all right, I think that's it as far as the wrap-up that we have. you
6: No, you should cut it off sooner rather than later, because we're just going to keep going on tangents. They're, they're going to keep coming, so just cut
4: it off whenever. <laughs> uh, list of things we're bad at, ending the show. On that note,
5: thank you guys for joining us. Thank you so much for doing all the research that went into it, and I can't wait to do part two and probably part three, maybe even four. We'll see how long it takes us.
4: Yeah, I... I... I think it's pretty safe to say that part two is where it starts getting really like genuinely fun and interesting.
6: Yeah, sorry, yeah. this was the intro. Like this was just the the teaser, this is like the
5: previews. Well, I mean, if we do car talk on every one, we'll get to part six or seven, part <laughs> five at least. But. I haven't explained like rod to stroke ratios
4: and like why you have to be careful with piston speeds for longer strokes.
5: So <laughs> I mean, those are words that it all sounds like it makes sense to me.
4: <laughs> yeah. And, like does. most sensible
7: thing I've said today alright, thank you guys right. later Appreciate listeners, it. see you well, next nice week, good to talk to y'all
2: have a good night later capitalism
1: works if it works at all because it always has socialism to bail it out and, and to subsidize it ask any
0: race, any real race it don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. In the 1980s, 50 corporations controlled most news media in America. By 1992, that number shrunk to two dozen. And today, only six corporations control 90% of everything Americans see, here and read. The money spent on the Iraq war alone, which killed 1 million people, 5% of Iraq's entire population, and planted the seeds for ISIS to flourish, could have covered all global investments to halt climate change trends.
4: I've thought of a really good sound effect that we should use every time uh, Marjorie Taylor Green gets brought up.
5: It won't work, buddy. It won't Come work. work. Yeah, F- we won't hear it. That's a Discord noise canceling for you. We've tried a lot. Trust me.
2: <laughs> we sat for like twenty minutes on one episode, like just just racking shotguns, on racking set. ARs, like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> racking my fucking pistol. Like it just won't pick it up until you fuck with the settings, like really hard. That's so weird. Yeah, the yeah. noise
5: canceling works sometimes. Like, huh? Oh, there uh, it is. I got, got part of it. A little bit. bit. <laughs> Wait, uh, you- also, by the way, Stalin did nothing wrong. Oh. Oh, all right. Every
6: podcast has one
1: <laughs>
6: We got three. <laughs> oh, great There's there's a Stalin picture now Thank <laughs> <Andy> you <laughs> Brandon That is a very large poster I'm actually like kind of pissed off That no, I don't have
5: that a large. Stalin poster now It's like fucked up that I don't have a Stalin poster As much as I love that guy <laughs>
6: Oh, great. All right, there you go. Perfect, Brandon. Stalin um, is your co-pilot.
4: I <laughs> didn't know like, a lot about what you guys were about, so you said Stalin did nothing wrong, and I felt very important that I have this in the background. Stalin,
7: take the wheel.
1: <laughs>
5: <laughs> no, I forgot when I said those other two things, I forgot robot cops because that's the, the big one. <laughs> like, robot cops will not be as sympathetic. Like, you will not be able to picket robot cops and put like a daisy in the muzzle of their rifle and win them over to your side by making them realize they're actually part of the working class. Like once we have robot cops, you guys, it's all over. Just like well, if mean, they're programmed
4: robot cops, what's gonna happen is they're gonna pose and like take pictures with all of the protesters to show that they're actually the cool robot cops, and then they're <laughs> going murder all the protesters afterwards.
2: Right now, I'm just picturing like Elysium robot cops, and then like them doing photo ops like Abu Ghraib style. No. Oh. Cool. <laughs> That's what I'm picturing. Holy shit. Yeah, there's a documentary about
4: this from the 80s. It's called Robocop. If Ferenti is
5: to Ruther as fur is to Stalin? Perhaps. Yeah, perhaps.
4: I, <laughs> Sorry, buddy. No. no, it's fine. I'm, I'm just like, no, because, like, on this side, I'm gonna say that maybe this was somewhat of a bad take on Parenti, and I don't know if Grover fur ever have any bad takes, so
5: I mean Jaron left just a couple minutes ago. He would he would have some things to say about that. He has some, apparently some beefs with Grover Fur. Like Yeah, he's a laundry list. Yeah.
4: Uh, I'm assuming Khan. I'm assuming he's not a big Jenny. No, 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 he, yeah, he
5: doesn't he does not like Grover Fur, but I mean Jaron's our resident anarchist, like I said, but um I only like Grover Fur because he says all the things I want to
6: hear. I want to hear the solid good, so <laughs> just right <laughs> into my veins, Daddy. Like. You know, fun. Um, I I recently listened to I, again. I'm I'm derailing us now. Fuck you. Everyone else gets to do it. I get to do it too. <laughs> we have I, I have no time frame. Like, um, we can do we can do seven parts. I don't give a shit, dude. Okay, cool. Um, I recently listened to a podcast which, uh, it's focused on Grover Fur, and it was from this I don't know this little Marxist, um. Podcast. I'm not even going to name it because I really I don't want anyone to listen. Oh, to Rev Left Radio. Um, just
5: some like little outfit. No, on the no, no. nobody
6: cares about them. Um, yeah, no, no. I was going to make a joke at some point about how you guys were moving up from Rev Left to us, but I couldn't even make that joke. It was. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you should.
2: That's a good joke. That's a good one.
4: Yeah. If we're going to be honest, it's a lateral
6: move. <laughs> there is a um, the joke. That's good. That's- <laughs> um. No, I forget what the name. What they claim to be Marxist, and they're like oh, we're going to debunk Grover Fur and, you know, show why he was wrong about this and that. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm willing to, I'm a, well, I'm a skeptic in general. So I like try and approach things like I'm going to listen, I'm going to pay attention. And they try to do this, like debunking of all this stuff. And I was like, this is garbage. I'm perfectly fine with, you know, sure there is plenty to that Grover Fur got wrong. And he made some pretty big claims. Um, Some that he couldn't quite um, demonstrate. However, this podcast was just like, they brought on this history expert. Oh, this um, supposed expert on the Soviet Union never identified whether she was a Marxist or anything else. So we don't know her ideology. Um, and she's like, oh, and she just dismisses everything. And I was like, okay, but with what evidence? Like, wh- you can dismiss it and laugh it away. But like, are you going to present any kind of evidence for your claims? You said, oh, he's wrong about X, Y, Z. And it's like, okay, Why? I just I found it very interesting where it's like, look, you can go through this debunking, but you're you're not going to get anywhere if you don't have any actual fucking evidence, and your argument actually doesn't make sense. Like they're just like, oh, here's this evidence that like Stalin did something that was completely against his interests, and I'm like, okay, it was. It was, sure, it was I can on that <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying wearing wearing uh yeah with with a ponytail or some a wig. Yeah. <laughs> Um anyway, I just wanted to point that out that I was like I listened to it and I was very frustrated by their terrible terrible arguments. I understand um,
4: genuinely why people would be dismissive of a lot of of arguments, but like he actually didn't he do the fucking legwork and was like actually no this is the problem. like maybe he had some bad conclusions. I'm I'm no fucking uh, scholar on fur, but like he was actually doing a lot more his, historical work then I think a lot of other historians who were perfectly willing to accept Nazi propaganda.
6: Yeah. He, he, at least he had something to point to at the very least. You could say, okay, well that source might be not the best. Okay. That's perfectly fine. But that wasn't the argument they were making. They're like, Oh, how could you believe something like that? It's like, okay, well, do you have any actual fucking evidence? Oh, well that evidence doesn't exist. And you're like, what? (laughs) You don't get to do that. (laughs) I've seen one trot meme.
5: In like the whole time I've been doing this, like you know, this is my life now, just living on the internet, looking at memes. But like I've seen yeah. one Trump meme, and it was supposedly debunking Grover Fur. The meme was basically like Grover Fur saying, "My evidence for Trotsky collaborating with Nazis is the fact that there is no evidence. It must have been suppressed and destroyed." <laughs> no, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's like something that,
6: that they Grover they were making similar enjoying. sorts of arguments, and I was like, yeah. Mm-mm, "Don't work that way." Sorry, you you can make conclusions based on that. I asked the person who posted it,
5: like, I was like, what is the context behind this? Crosshap memes now? This is news to me. Like, I thought it just had newspaper. <laughs> but I never got any response. Like, I never heard anything else to support that. So I don't know. But yeah, I, I
2: think mean, uh, Furs' idea behind that was just because, like, um, when Khrushchev took over, like, they destroyed a shit ton of internal documents. Yeah, like, Grover Fur, he, like, went out of his way to learn Russian and then get access to, like, locked away uh, Soviet files that, like, no one else had ever read before, and he fucking read them because he took the time to learn Russian. And so, like, one uh, critique I see is that, like, people are like, well, nobody else has ever read that document, so, like, we don't know really what it says. And it's like, learn some Russian, motherfuckers. Like, yeah, I mean, how hard is it?
4: And it trans- like, do the actual legwork. Like, I... I think it's valid to critique some of of his uh, like conclusions or arguments but like give him credit for his research. Jesus fucking Christ. You I like so well, I'm assuming that we're all familiar with how people love to quote like caloric intake of the Soviet Union versus the US as like a, some yeah. sort of measure of superiority like Which the CIA of...
5: admits is was higher and more nutritious in the USSR.
4: I don't know. I've seen I've seen some like really like claims that I'm skeptical of, but like, oh dude, uh, still on mushrooms. Jesus Christ.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't like wear off real quick, dude.
4: <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah,
5: we'll do like some yeah, just our normal wrap up or whatever. Seven yeah, forty five ish, eight ish.
6: Yeah, we're almost at the uh, end of this bit, and uh, I think we'll wrap it up very shortly here.
4: I'm never yeah. almost end of my bit. My bit goes on forever. <laughs>
6: Confirm, I'm
5: allowing for Stalinist rants to happen in there, so just <laughs> keep that in mind. Yeah, that's already coming yeah. for
4: the fact that you're okay with my Stalinist rants makes me worry that I'm gonna get purged,
5: buddy. Just like, just come <laughs> hang out whenever you want to just rant about Stalin, I'm totally down. <laughs> <laughs>